Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. How careful are you? When you're meeting someone in real life who you've only previously met online. In this day and age, I think most of us are pretty cautious when it comes to interacting with strangers. If you go on a Tinder date, you might send a close friend or family member the location of the place that you're meeting, give them the time you're supposed to be back, the the username of who you're meeting, etc. You do this so hopefully, hopefully, if something happens, there's at least someone who knows where you are, someone who can help you or can direct law enforcement to go help you. But as always, there are some people who don't take precautions like these, sometimes maybe because they're not street smart, but also maybe because they're ashamed of online dating for whatever reason in this example. They don't want their families to know that they're trying to meet someone or that they're hooking up here and there just for sexy fun. Maybe they don't want whoever else they're dating to know. Any number of factors could lead them to wanting to keep their online entanglements private. And that can be dangerous, even deadly. And it's not a new phenomenon. These exact same dynamic dynamics were at work 80 years ago back in the 1940s. Of course, there wasn't Tinder back then or Grindr or any other hookup apps. There wasn't the internet or even Craigslist, but there were Lonely Hearts Clubs. A Lonely Hearts Club was essentially the 1940s version of Tinder. Just like Tinder, you wrote a biography of yourself, included a picture. Unlike Tinder, your profile was distributed in the form of a book of eligible people to the club's other members, typically members of the other sex. And if another member liked you, they might write to you. In the middle of the 20th century, with so many more people widowed in the U.S. than now, thanks to war and diseases that didn't have modern medicine to cure them yet, these clubs were extraordinarily popular. And they were especially popular among women. In an era where women were still expected to be prim and proper ladies and follow all kinds of so-called respectable courting rules, Lonely Hearts Clubs allow women the chance to more aggressively put themselves out there on the sly. Instead of just waiting for some dude they ran into to ask them out or waiting for a friend or relative to set them up with some guy they might not even like. Maybe in an era where financial opportunities for women were a lot more scarce than they are today, they could also even find someone who could provide for them. Or maybe they would end up getting murdered. 
when Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez began communicating via a Lonely Hearts Club, they formed a chaotic connection that would eventually lead to the deaths of at least three people. They may have murdered many more. Fernandez had been running scams and probably committed at least one murder before he met Martha Beck. With Beck, he would pursue his scams more aggressively. The two would perfect a scheme to bilk women out of their cash and assets by having Fernandez contact them through a Lonely Hearts Club. He would charm them with the help of Martha, posing as a sister, to lower their guards, making the women feel like Fernandez was a devoted brother and gentleman, a well-to-do New York gentleman. How could this sweet man possibly have any bad intentions? But of course, he did have bad intentions, the worst. The Lonely Hearts killers would take at least three lives before being apprehended in Michigan, and the trial that followed would become a national media sensation, a sordid story of sex, lies, and murder. The Lonely Hearts killers, right now, on another true crime, murderous lovers edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the Master Sucker. And that's it this week, okay? Sorry. Nah, sorry. I said a bad tone there. I shouldn't have yelled at you. Uh, that wasn't fair. I hope it's not weird now. Uh, one last chance to see me do stand-up this spring when this comes out. I'll be at Comedy on State in Madison, Wisconsin, May 11th, 12th, and 13th. Such a good club. And then focusing on podcasting for the summer outside of maybe one weekend in Spokane. Still locking that date down and excited to do so. Uh, to focus on podcasting. Uh, our charity of the month for May is the DNA Doe Project, the organization I came across in the Bible Belt Strangler episode just recently. The DNA Doe Project is a nonprofit with a simple humanitarian mission to identify John and Jane Doe's using investigative genetic genealogy. We want to help give some healing to those who have suffered such significant losses. Our donation amount is currently TBD. To learn more, please visit dnadoeproject.org. And now for this week's merch announcement. Are you positive your dad isn't a vicious murderer? Move along. Are you certain that your father was present and accounted for for all the time frames of your life? Well, so stop listening. If not, this is important. Every year, thousands of fathers, millions of fathers go golfing or take business trips a little too often. These same fathers are often unaccounted for when people are murdered. Coincidence? We think not. And that's why we're introducing some new official merchandise for America's most important vigilante club. Dads are disappearing where all the corpses hide, otherwise known as Dad Watch. If you're thinking of joining your local chapter, please be sure to gear up for that first meeting. The official collection includes multiple shirt designs and color options, spiral-bound notebook for important investigative notes, an official Time Suck Chapter Dad Watch sticker, keychain, and mug. All stuff that will come in handy on late night stakeouts. Head on over to badmagicmerch.com before it's too late. That was a dramatic merch announcement. That was a serious one. Uh, with all that important stuff out of the way, now on to another story revolving around the true crime, sex, and money of today's tale. Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez were different than some of the other serial killers, uh, or killer couples, excuse me, we've looked at. They were not young, bright people thought to be on top of the world like Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. Do you remember the raw talent of Deadly Innocence? Fucking Paul's alter ego. How could you forget? God, just robbed the world of so many great great rhymes. These are his words, if you remember. 
You think I'm innocent? But behind this, I'm packing a lot of deadliness. So come at me. Come at me. I got a fucking nice face. I look like a pretty boy. Why don't you come at me, man? Yeah, he wrote that down. He wrote, he was like, God, this shit's gold. This is great. This is great. (laughs) Paul was sent to prison for murder. He killed all of our chances to watch and listen to the rapper with the most natural talent ever develop into an artist that today would be more commercially successful, more critically respected than Tupac, Biggie, Eminem, and Jay-Z combined. Uh, Anyway, uh, Raymond and Martha, not as young or as bright as Paul and Carla. Not saying that Paul and Carla were bright, by the way. Just comparatively, Raymond and Martha, less bright. Uh, Nor were they the uh, degenerates to the level of Rose and Fred West, murdering not only young women for sexual satisfaction, but even their own fucking kids. Uh, They didn't keep people alive as sex slaves and torture them. To the outside world, even after they were caught, Martha and Raymond seemed fairly average. I almost wanted to use the word normal. Not normal, but maybe more relatable seeming, at least until all the trial details began to come out uh, than some of these other monsters. Martha Beck was a nurse, mother of two, who hadn't had the easiest life. She'd gotten pregnant out of wedlock, had a divorce, couldn't find any romantic prospects that seemed to work out, but she held a steady job, and most people seemed to find her really somewhat likable. Uh, Similarly, Raymond Fernandez was a father of four who had a string of shipping jobs before moving to New York to live with his sister. He was a war veteran, and if he was a little bit of a deadbeat, he could also be pretty charming, and most people who met him would say that he sure seemed like a nice person. Both of these worthless fucks did completely abandon their children like only a soulless sociopath can, but most of the world did not know that until towards the end of the trial. Before those revelations to most, they didn't seem like the kind of people who could do that. The way the world saw them, of course, you know, would change drastically following their arrest as the trial went on. Uh, The detectives in Kent County, Michigan, who apprehended the couple were shocked by the brutality of their crimes and the stone cold way in which they would describe them. Perhaps it was so stone cold because at the end of the day, For these two, it was all about money. Maybe a little bit about sex for Raymond, but mostly about money. Raymond and Martha committed their murders in the hopes of attaining their victims' wealth. That's what drove them to develop elaborate schemes to make the families of their victims think that they were still alive in some cases, to be able to get away with taking that money. But after they killed their last two victims, too many many people would grow too suspicious, friends and neighbors, and would alert the police. And the Lonely Hearts killers were then caught practically red-handed. But though the crimes may have been primarily about money, the story that Martha and Raymond told to authorities was a complicated one, not just about dollars, but about love, jealousy, and a weird level of devotion. It was a story that often uh, conflicted, often changed, and it was entertaining to learn about it uh, this week. I hope you like it too. So let us begin. Uh, We'll start by setting a scene in the decade in which the story takes place, the 1940s. Then we'll look at Lonely Hearts Clubs, uh, which provide the backdrop for this story. Then we'll walk through the lives and crimes and trial of our killers in the timeline. For whatever reason, outside of World War II, the 40s are not a decade we visit or discuss very often. So for the average non-military person, what were things like in the 1940s? Well, they were stupid. They were super fucking stupid. All people did was complaining about how stupid they were. So much so the 1940s, uh, still known as the stupidest decade in the history of stupid shit. No, that's not true at all. Uh, Despite a big fucking war going on for a good chunk of the decade, it was a great decade for most people living in the US overall who didn't die or who weren't horribly injured in that war or who didn't have family members die or become horribly injured. World War II catapulted the US out of the Great Depression, leading to an unprecedented amount of economic growth. 
By the mid-1940s, the country's economy was prospering. The majority of men who wanted jobs, even non-white men, could not only find them, but find jobs that paid well. This would change for non-white men heading into the 50s, but things were still way better than they had been earlier in the century. Families were growing with the baby boom underway. Uh, the following And following the end of the war in September of 1945, people began buying things that they may have had to forget about purchasing during wartime. Homes, cars, not just practical family sedans, but also hot rods, uh, electric appliances, other former luxuries were now purchased in mass. People began vacationing more often, going to places like Las Vegas, Nevada, the new gambling capital of the country, or spending spring breaks in sunny locales like Miami or San Diego. All in all, the decade returned an air of optimism to the American people that had died with the stock market crash in 1929 and the world war that followed. And a sense of whimsy and romance was back and encapsulated in everything from songs to fashion. Lucifina deemed much more sex for the country. The 1940s gave rise to the very first women's two-piece swimsuits. Beach boners, back in style. Okay, maybe not like in style, but they were back in numbers not seen in years, I'm sure. So what's any of this have to do with Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez? Well, for one thing, it may help explain the popularity of Lonely Hearts Clubs that allowed them to find their victims. With a much more candid attitude about sex on the rise and a cultural return of romance, after the dreary days of the war and the depression, many people were looking for the kind of fairy tale romances that they saw on the big screen in movies like Casablanca. And there's also a more direct connection. Though it's unverified, our main source could not attest to it. Uh, Different sources did claim that Martha Beck found escapism in romantic Hollywood narratives. Spurred on by a culture where romance was at the forefront and eventually she imagined herself as the heroine in these scenarios. She wanted her knight in shining armor so fucking badly. She was willing to do anything to find him and stay with him, like anything at all. Her decisions, ooh, gonna be super cringy. Also, the 1940s uh, focus on and fascination with Lonely Hearts Clubs made the Lonely Hearts Killers a much more sensational story than they would have been otherwise. Also, like now, true crime stories were hot back in the 40s. Did you know that the 40s were a huge decade for true crime? There was an explosion of cheap true crime media, the likes of which the country had never seen before. Pulp novels with covers featuring a a blonde or brunette coiffed uh, model wearing a low-cut top along with some line like, too many lovers meant murder, were common. Raymond and Martha were a bit like a real-life version of these stories. The pages inside these stories featured sexy women in gowns leaning in a way that allowed for maximum cleavage or with their butts protruding or their bare legs stretched out in front of them. Hail Lucifina! I love sexy pinup type photos like this from this era. Much hotter to me than modern nude images for reasons I will probably never fully understand. Uh, these pulps provided readers with a rare opportunity to go where few dared venture. For a mere 15 cents, the reader could eavesdrop on the seedy world of true crime. He or she could escape into a fantasy world where people behaved deviantly and then go about their day like a normal law-abiding citizen. And now for many of the people that eagerly read about the Lonely Hearts killers and even went to their trial in New York... The Lonely Hearts Killers were, again, these pulp novels brought to life. So before we get to the Lonely Hearts Killers, let's take a look at Lonely Hearts Clubs, what they were, how they operated, and how things got out of hand. Americans used matrimonial advertisements for decades prior to the Lonely Hearts Killers. Uh, Serial killer Bell Gunnis, uh, who we covered here a few years ago, began placing marriage ads for victim after victim back in 1905, luring would-be suitors to her LaPorte, Indiana murder farm. Albert Fish. Arguably the oddest motherfucker we have ever covered. Mr. Showbiz, uh, Mr. Peanut Butter himself, uh, beginning back in the second decade of the 19th century, uh, he, uh, the 20th century, excuse me, second decade of the 20th century. I went 
uh, wrong century there. He bought membership into an earlier version of the Lonely Hearts Clubs. Uh, They referred to them as matrimonial agencies. And you could either, as a woman, submit your address and basic info about yourself for a small fee to these agencies. Or as a man, you could buy a list of addresses and info of women looking to get married. Uh, Albert bought these lists and then started old correspondence, not, excuse not old, odd correspondences that would start innocently, then get pretty fucking kinky as he sussed out what his lady target might be willing to do. You know what? Let's take a quick trip down memory lane. I'll read a, just a snippet of uh, one correspondence. Albert here talking about a son he doesn't actually have and what that son needs, but really what he wants. <laughs> I forgot how fucking great this was. Bobby does not wet or muss his clothes on the bed. Uh, he will tell you uh, when he has to use the toilet, number one and number two. Uh, for number one, his pants may be unbuttoned at the crotch and his monkey taken out. His pants and drawers are all made with a drop seat. All you have to do is loose three buttons in the back and down they come. Saves a lot of undressing. Handy when you want to spank him. Just drop the seat of his pants and drawers. You don't have to strip him except at night for bed or to give him a bath or switching. The doctor says three or four good spankings a day on his bare behind. We'll do him good, as he is a nice and fat in that spot. It will be an aid to him. When he don't mind you, then you must strip him and use the cat nine tails. Say you won't hesitate to use the paddle of cat nine tails on him when he needs it. I fucking love it. His doctor demands <laughs> he gets fat bottom spanked. And then a couple letters later, the same correspondence, he's writing shit like this. Do you know that I feel that in part I am to blame for the condition Bobby is in? My conscience says that for being careless, I should be whipped. In the same manner and place, you will whip Bobby. Someday I hope you will be able to accommodate me. And pretty soon, taking it further, a few uh, letters later, he's pretending to be a big-time Hollywood producer now, talking about how everyone is spanking everyone else's bottom. And it's totally not a big deal. You shouldn't feel weird about it. It's a good thing to do. Out in Hollywood, uh, Laura LaPlante came in my office, dressed in a birthday suit, and sat in my lap. We have an old Roman, Romani gypsy woman who tells all the girls that if they catch a man naked in his home, whip his bare behind with switches and then kiss him. She will surely marry him. Now they all carry switches. <laughs> I forgot I forgot exactly what he wrote. He wrote so much of this shit. And it gets even crazier. Uh, I'm always asked what my favorite episode of Time Suck is. And I, I think it is probably Albert Fish. It's just the stuff he wrote is going to be so hard to ever top. Anyway, these marriage advertisements would soon morph into what were called Lonely Hearts Clubs. And they became wildly popular in part thanks to the women's temperance movement. When the women who crusade, uh, crusaded for prohibition and freedom from their abusive and drunk husbands shunned dance halls and bars, they created the need for a new space where single women could meet men, a potentially much more dangerous new space. Sometimes Lonely Hearts Clubs were called Love Brokers, Cupids, uh, uh, Shatchins, fucking no idea why it was called that, Uh, a full-page expose about Cupid Clubs published by the Detroit Free Press in 1929 described customers as essentially falling into one of two groups, middle-aged people who were overlooked by Dan Cupid, and youths anxious for the responsibilities and joys of marital life. And what joys of marital life are they referring to? Uh, Sex, of course. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, Like I said before, these clubs were essentially the first version of Tinder. But unlike today's Tinder, populated by people of various levels of desirability, Lonely Hearts Clubs found particular affinity with people who were deemed at least somewhat societally undesirable, especially widows and older unmarried women. The women who used these services were hoping that through getting a husband, they might achieve things that were otherwise unavailable to them. Greater financial stability, uh, more social status, uh, getting out from a family that may have viewed them as something close to a domestic servant or an open liability, a burden. 
Let's look at a, a Lonely Hearts Club application letter written by one of a quote, pair of middle-aged spinsters. Their words from Kansas. We are twin sisters living out in the country. We have never had a fellow and have no money. We are 43 years of age and are sending you a quarter. All the money we have in the world, Jesus Christ. Please send us lots of men to write to. We want to get married awful much. And they added a postscript. We want to get your letter ourselves and not have Pa find it out. My God. Being 43, living with Pa, still worried about Pa at 43. Holy shit. I love how being 43 this time was being a middle-aged spinster. Now there are so many 43-year-olds with sexier bodies than probably almost any woman alive back in the 1940s. And with youthful, gorgeous faces, it can be so easy to focus on so much negativity today. Thanks, 24-hour news cycle. Uh, But we do live in such an amazing time in so many ways. Uh, Still wasn't as easy with these clubs as simply putting yourself out there and then fucking bam, you're all hitched up. Like Tinder, the most matches went to the most attractive applicants. For example, the proprietors of what was called the Widows and Widowers Lonely Hearts Club conducted a survey of 2,000 customers and found that her gentleman clients preferred constancy, aka being faithful, and good looks above all else, uh, even above financial stability and disposition or personality. And by the 1940s, these services had become wildly popular. Each year, the Love Starve sent 50,000 letters to Detroit's Widows and Widowers Love Club alone. With a population of around a million residents, the city hosted several such clubs. And the rest of the nation's cities did the same. By the end of the decade, love clubs across the U.S. boasted a clientele of more than a million people. Men and women burdened by the toil of the soil, wrote Theodore Delevingne of the Free Press, stopping the daily round of chores to send out a hopeful note from an unhopeful chant of a drab existence to ask the goddess of the Pandora box with the P.O. number, please to send a boyfriend or vice versa to make life less lonely. Man, some fucking flowery, flowery uh, language for an article about dating services, Theodore. Sounds like he was a frustrated poet. Uh, Theodore interviewed John B. Stackpool, the superintendent of Mail in Detroit, who said that one particular Lonely Hearts Club brings to the box out there in the sorting room between 400 and 500 letters each day. There are two others that run from 100 to 300 letters daily and perhaps a dozen others that haven't such a large business. A lot of dating business was being done. The cover charge for entry into your average dating club was around a quarter, that 25 cents, for which you might get a four or so page pamphlet containing snapshots and brief biographies of clients looking for mates. Gentlemen received a booklet containing information about marriageable ladies uh, and uh, a booklet, oh, excuse me, and ladies, a booklet containing information about eligible bachelors and widowers. For $3, sorry, he's fighting to sneeze there. Uh, For $3, members of the Ultimate Dating Club received a year subscription, but that was where the oversight ended. The correspondence and whatever came after it was a sole responsibility of the people putting themselves out there. As you can expect, many of these lonely hearts fell for scams. In 1930, an expose recounted the story of a Colorado miner who was duped out of 5,000 bucks by his love letter mistress, who said she was a 42-year-old New York widow, but was actually, according to the article, a squat little man with an agile pen. <laughs> that prospector Dunn did got, got catfished. Uh, The expose warned that thousands of men and women have lost their life savings in similar circumstances after sending their names and photos into some sweetheart or matrimony club. At best, it is a dangerous business, no matter how carefully bureaus are conducted. Some think that the number of people who are scamming or otherwise lying in Lonely Hearts advertisements probably greater than the number of people who didn't. Journalist Wenzel Brown pointed or polled 32 men who were members of these clubs and found that 18 had successfully gotten money from their pen pals 
even though nine already had wives when they joined the club. Lying, cheating, stealing, it was ever-present in these clubs. Despite the risk, the popularity of these clubs did not wane until long after the dark stars of today's tale were dead and gone. That popularity would make finding victims easy for Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez. When they went to scour the pages of Lonely Hearts Club publications for potential victims, they quickly found hundreds and hundreds of names. Now that we know a little bit about the world they lived in, hunted in, let's tell their story in today's Time Suck Timeline. Right after today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. 
Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. And we're back into the story, and it is now actually timeline time. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Raymond Martinez Fernandez, born in the territory of Hawaii to Spanish parents on December 17, 1914. Shortly thereafter, the family moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut, where they lived from 1917 until 1932. Not a whole lot is known about Ray's early life. Five and a half years after his birth, on May 6, 1920, Martha Beck, born as Martha June Seabrook in Milton, Florida. Her life wasn't a happy one from the start. Probably not. Her story changes quite a bit from one interrogation to the next after her arrest. And she reads as an extremely manipulative person, so I'm not going to, you know, be sure about all this shit since it comes from her. But according to her, uh, she was overweight, teased for being so, and underwent puberty prematurely, which she said brought on a fair amount of early sexual attention. At her trial, she would uh, claim to have been raped by her brother and subsequently beaten by her mother for it, who said she blamed Martha for the incident. Horrible if true. Again, uh, not sure I believe it because she said it. Uh, and she saved that info for trial when her lawyer uh, was throwing anything at the wall to try and save her from the death penalty. And this info reads a bit to me uh, like proven habitual liar Casey Anthony's uh, shit when she was saying that her dad molested her when she was trying to get a jury to let her get away with, you know, murdering her fucking kid. Uh, as a teen, Martha said she ran away from home to join a traveling circus. And that actually seems to be true. Famed true crime writer Truman Capote later claimed to have briefly toured with Beck when he was 10 years old in the circus. Uh, how I wish that some specific details existed regarding Martha's circus days. Was she shot out of a cannon? Did she wash the acrobats' sparkly outfits, feed the lions, clean the elephants, jerk off the clowns? What did she do? We don't know. Raymond Martinez Fernandez, uh, his first love would occur in 1932 when he relocated to Cadiz, Spain to work on his uncle's farm. There at age 18, he met, courted, and married Agnesia uh, Robles Alonso whom he referred to as Encar Encarnacion. After the birth of their first child, a son named Ralph in 1932, Raymond returned to New York uh, and then uh, motivated supposedly to make money to support his family. And maybe that was the reason. He seems to have been a different man compared to who he later became. His work would abruptly end six months later when he heard about his son's illness. He would return to Spain, 
planned to head back to New York the first chance he got, but that chance wouldn't come for years and years. Because of the hostilities of the Spanish Civil War, Raymond would remain by his wife's side until 1947. He would fight with Franco's forces, serve eight months of combat duty from 1938 to 1939. 1940, he and his wife had a daughter, Francisca. And from 1940 to 1942, Raymond would later say that he worked as a spy for the British intelligence, supervised by a shadowy character he called Captain Wood. That to me sounds like bullshit, but it is actually true. Uh, Those who met him say that Raymond had a quick wit, a sharp sense of humor. He could uh, loose, uh, you know, loosen tight lips. He would especially spend time at the shipping yards and dockside taverns, getting passing sailors to reveal their secrets, getting good practice here for sweet talking women out of their shit later. He passed along sensitive information such as enemy plans to sabotage British assets and the movement of contraband munitions and explosives across the border between Gibraltar and Spain to Captain Wood. All in all, he performed his counter espionage duties well and received generous payments from the British government. And at this point in his life, it seemed like he was a law abiding family man. Another daughter, Gloria Fernandez, born in 1945. His fourth child with Encarnacion. There is no name or birth date assigned to their third child, but court records will later attest that he did have four children in Spain. Also in 1945, Raymond worked as a seaman aboard the Empire Jewel, an oil tanker en route to Curacao. But all would not go according to plan. Shortly after getting his job on the oil rig in December of 1945, a steel hatch fell on him, fracturing his skull and severely injuring his frontal lobe. Uh, The damage caused by this injury may well have affected his social and sexual behavior. It's uh, unclear, but he didn't seem to be the same dude after this incident. Uh, We've been through this before. A lot of the serial killers we've covered have suffered frontal lobe injuries, right? The Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, knocked out when a dresser fell on his head when he was two. Three years later, got knocked the fuck out in a swing accident at the park. Mr. Showbiz, Albert Fish, suffered a concussion uh, after falling off a cherry tree at an early age, led to severe headaches, dizzy spells, a stutter, and maybe a a whole bunch of uh, poop eating. Terrible ice cream truck driver Fred West went through a serious personality change after fracturing his skull in a motorcycle accident when he was 17, put him in a coma for a week, ended up having a a steel plate attached to his skull. And there are so many other examples. As I said in the Fred and Rose West suck, portions of the frontal lobe play a primary role in regulating overall moral behavior, impulse control, and sexual behavior. After his head wound, Raymond spends four weeks in a Curacao hospital. Afterwards, he works on the American oiler USS Mission Santa Clara for just two months before the brand new Ray is caught stealing 53 bucks in linens in Mobile, Alabama. A few months after that, early 1946, Ray is convicted of theft of government property and spends five months in a federal prison in Tallahassee, Florida. He would later say that it was during this time that his cellmate converted him to a belief in voodoo and black magic. Fernandez later claimed black magic gave him irresistible power and charm over women. Uh Uh-huh. A steel hatch really shook his noodle up. Or, you know, I guess who knows? Maybe he was a dark wizard. What if that was a real thing with a lot of these serial killers? Like you look deep enough into all these stories and research starts to come up proving that they're just a bunch of dark wizards. Masters of the occult. Just a bunch of powerful voodoo witch doctors. If that were true, though, I I would think there would be uh, a lot more of them breaking out of prison. I would think that they would use their dark powers to escape from their cells instead of just sitting in them waiting to die. Uh, Whatever happened, Raymond would leave the prison and return to New York where he'd move in with his sister. In 1947, once again in New York, Raymond begins corresponding with lonely hearts through these love clubs. To increase his allure, he creates an affluent alter ego he calls Charles Martin. Charles Martin uh, had an M.O. 
He would wine and dine women, then steal their money and possessions. Uh, most were too embarrassed to later report their crimes. Sounds like Ray Char- uh, uh, Ray's uh, Charles Martin had a little bit of Christian Gerhard Striders. There we go. Uh, Clark Rockefeller in him. We'll have a simply grand time, darling. A real peach melba kind of night. On September 18th, 1947, Raymond and a new friend, probably more than a friend, 50-year-old Jane Wilson Thompson, depart New York for Spain. Jane was a high school home economics teacher who had been living with her mother, Pearl, at 565 West 139th Street in New York. And they arrived in Granada, October 10th, 1947. For the next five days, they would stay at the Hotel Universal in Granada as Mr. and Mrs. Raymond Fernandez. Somewhat bizarrely, Jane would even meet Fernandez's actual wife, the last time he supposedly ever saw her. And then on November 7th, 1947, Jane mysteriously passes away. Records would say she died of a stomach ailment. Fernandez said Jane had a heart attack. But to her mother, Pearl, he said that she had been killed in a train wreck. Why would his story change if nothing nefarious happened here and change drastically? Making things look more suspicious, Ray took possession of Jane's property with what sure looked like a, a forged will when investigators examined it later. The will contained the preface, I make this statement to clear any misunderstandings with reference to my friendship and voyage to Europe with Mr. Raymond Martinez Fernandez. Uh, Yeah, that sounds legit. That sounds like how a will starts. Uh, The statement detailed three loans totaling $2,500 that Fernandez uh, allegedly made to Thompson in verification that she had subsequently provided credentials entitling him to the contents of her residence and her stock portfolio to be sure that he was repaid. A second document deprived Pearl, her mother, of any right to interfere in this case. Uh, but even though he had this uh, second document, uh, oh, so generously, Fernandez splits the life insurance with Pearl. What, what a saint. Did he do this because he was a nice guy or to increase the odds that Pearl would not look further into all of this? On November 29th, 1947, Raymond returns to New York alone and moves into the apartment at 565 West 139th Street. He's now living with the elderly mother of the woman he very likely murdered. And now our two timelines will converge. In late 1947, Charles Martin uh, makes contact with an interesting nurse from Florida, 27-year-old Martha Beck. What's she been up to? After finishing school, uh, she graduated seventh in the Milton High School class of 38 out of a class of six. Uh, Beck studied nursing. And I don't know how many students were in her class. I just feel like throwing her some random shade. Uh, I think she's actually a pretty good student. Uh, She graduated from nursing school, received her nurse's registration on March 8th, 1942, but had difficulty finding a job as a nurse. So she took a job as an undertaker's assistant, preparing female bodies for burial. She's getting a real fucking weird resume, traveling circus something and undertaker's assistant. Eventually, she was able to find work as a nurse. In July of 1942, she left Florida for Vallejo, California. She'd gotten a job at the Vallejo General Hospital. But then she got sick, lost her job, ended up hospitalized in San Francisco for an undisclosed amount of time in September of 1942. It was around here she met a man named F.J. Carmen, a man she would quickly become intimate with outside of marriage. My God! Uh, She'd moved to Norfolk, Virginia with him. Then she would return to California thinking her long-distance relationship was steady and rock solid. She would maintain that relationship, moving to Pensacola, where she was named the superintendent of Pensacola Maternity Hospital on January 7th, 1944. Around this time, Mr. Carmen gets her pregnant and then tells her that he does not want to marry her or be with her at all. And he bounces. The beginning that we know of anyway of a romantic pattern that will keep repeating itself for the rest of her life before she heads to prison. Now single and pregnant and undoubtedly facing a lot of social stigma, Martha is hospitalized for a suicide attempt March of 1944. 
She will combat the social stigma she is getting by telling people that her baby's father had died in the Pacific campaign. Uh, she was looked upon now with pity instead of scorn. She takes her lie so far about this, uh, you know, veteran husband of hers that did not exist or, you know, yeah, uh, father of her child that she even had an article written up in a local paper about the war hero husband that she never had. The beginning of Martha being a documented liar. Uh, she will resign from the hospital at the end of May and June. Things turn around. She starts dating a bus driver named Alfred Willard Beck, who was apparently okay with her being in the third trimester of pregnancy with another man's baby. On September 26, 1944, she gives birth to Willadine Carmen. Less than three months later, December 13, 1944, she marries Alfred Beck. And within just a few months, she will be pregnant again, giving birth to Anthony Beck, December 5, 1945. Then a few weeks after that, she files for divorce from Alfred Beck. And now she's single again with two kids, more stigma. It is thought that she returned to her uh, war widow story now. By January of 1946, she's working at the crippled children's home in Pensacola. And those crippled kids loved her. She'd play all kinds of fun games with them, like hide the leg brace and pin the tail on the crooked spine. No, she didn't do that. Uh, just fucking absurd to me <laughs> that she worked at a place literally called crippled children's home. Different times, different acceptable lingo. Uh, Martha played a Lonely Hearts or placed a Lonely Hearts ad in early 1947 and Raymond Fernandez answered and they'll correspond from April to December of 1947. He's corresponded with a lot of different women. After a torrid exchange of letters, Raymond travels though to Pensacola to meet his sweet new lady, December 9th, 1947. The lovers spent the weekend together. Most sources say having lots of crazy sex, which culminated in a successful marriage proposal. Must've been real good sex. Raymond now returns to uh, New York three days later to prepare for their nuptials. But then two weeks later, December 23rd, 1947, Raymond sends Martha a breakup letter and the marriage is off. What's going on here? She knew how to get a man to fall for her uh, real hard, real quick, and then lose him just as quickly. Maybe this is because she was incredibly mentally and emotionally unstable. I'm guessing. Crazy in bed. That led some guys to stay around for a little while. But then the crazy outside of the bedroom becomes too much and they're running for the hills. Basing this off of uh, some info that is coming down the pipe. Immediately after receiving her letter, letting her know she's been dumped on December 26th, Martha attempts to do the unthinkable. She tries to gas herself and her children to death using the kitchen stove. Some sources state that she put the kids and herself in the stove somehow. I doubt it. Highly doubt she would have a stove that would be uh, big enough to do that, but whatever. Exact details don't matter. This is just obviously super fucked up, whatever she did here. She's not well. She's really, really not well. A neighbor finds her, thwarts the attempt, saving her life and the kids' lives. And then this neighbor sends a suicide letter Martha wrote to Raymond. I'm sure at Martha's behest who then calls Martha up and the two decide now to get back together and for Martha to move up north. Oh boy, that is that is not a great way to get back into a relationship. So what is you and, uh, what is you and Martha's uh, story, Ray? Well, it's a good one. Uh, we met through a Lonely Hearts Club and after writing back and forth for weeks, I took a trip down to Florida and we, we fucked each other's brains out. It was so good. Uh, we made quick plans to get married. Yay! And then I went back to New York and I thought about some of the non-sex stuff, uh, like she, how she said she would kill me if I ever tried to, to run away or how she threatened to burn the kids alive in the yard if they walked in the bedroom and interrupted us again. And I, uh, I got cold feet and I broke it off. But then she tried to turn her kitchen into a gas chamber and murder herself and her kids because they dumped her. So, you know, not wanting that on my conscience. I said I was just kidding about the breakup and here we are. So, uh, uh, yay. Oh, and... Uh, and the sex, you know, sex is good. Everything, everything's on the table, literally everything. The, the rest of it though, oh, uh, a lot of crying in the shower. Uh, Martha would arrive in New York a week later, 
January 2nd, 1948. Just a day after that, Jane Wilson Thompson's mother, Pearl Wilson, is uh, she's moving out. She heads out of the West 139th Street apartment after Fernandez buys her a one-way ticket to Wilmington, North Carolina, where she will live with relatives. Ray and Martha now have the house to uh, themselves. Maybe sources don't indicate if the kids accompanied mom on this trip or not. The honeymoon, though, not going to last. They would quickly break up again after just a week. On January 10th, Martha returns now to Pensacola, where she discovers that the crippled children's hospital has replaced her. Yeah, that's the kind of shit that, that employers do uh, when you suddenly stop doing your job for over a week. They'll find someone else to, uh, I don't know, let crippled kids in and out of their cages or wash them out with a fire hose or whatever they would do there. Sorry, that fucking name again just conjures up horrible mental pictures for me. Uh, Martha was officially notified of her termination on January 17th, 1948. Uh, oh, well, Raymond and Martha start talking again. And another week later, life moving so fast for these two, Martha's traveling back to New York. They're back on. Uh, definitely with her kids this time, January 23rd, 1947. But then two days later, they break up. And Martha now abandons her children, dropping them off at a Salvation Army and attempts to throw herself in front of a subway. Another suicide attempt. Maybe. I mean, did, did she really try and throw herself in front of a subway? Or did she just want people to think that she tried that? Not to be overly cold here, but how do you fuck up throwing yourself in front of a subway? If you're serious about taking yourself out. I've been on the subway a ton of times over the years, and it seems pretty simple. You just go over where the train first pops out of the tunnel. You look down the tunnel. You wait till you hear and see it coming. You back up. You get a running start. You fucking jump, and then bam. Even if you slip and fall trying to jump, you'll probably still make it far enough to have the train at least like clip your head or something. You know, dent you all to shit. Or if you're super unathletic, just fucking hop down and then just walk out in front of the train. Martha didn't do any of that. She was not even injured. Seems like a desperate attention grab more than an actual suicide attempt to me. Uh, Somehow after this, she and Raymond reconcile again and she moves into his apartment after not trying to get her kids back. So she just fucking abandons the kids. Some sources say that Ray didn't want to be burdened with her kids. So she was like, well, fuck them. And now around the time of this reconciliation, she learns how Raymond actually made his living and agrees to become part of his con. Martha agrees to masquerade as Charles Martin's sister, or alternately, sometimes sister-in-law, in exchange for a promise that the scheme will remain business and not pleasure. Sexually and romantically, she said, Raymond Fernandez belonged to her and her alone. Around Valentine's Day, 1948, Charles Martin and Martha Beck traveled to Pennsylvania, where Raymond had wooed an unsuspecting teacher named Esther Hen, or Henny, with a bunch of Lonely Hearts Club correspondents. Esther was 40 years old, she married Martin in Virginia on February 28th, right? Things are moving along. And afterwards, the two returned to his apartment in New York, the same apartment once owned and occupied by Jane Wilson Thompson and her mom, Pearl. Esther soon wises up to the con, though. Sometime after marrying Fernandez, Esther hears rumors about Jane Thompson's sudden and unexpected demise in Spain. Also hears from her new husband's sister, Martha, that he still has a wife and four kids in Spain, making him a bigamist. Uh, these rumors terrify her. Then 10 days after they're married, she discovers that someone had taken her diamond ring uh, and wristwatch. But whoever it was, uh, they hadn't been very discreet. She found a receipt for a pawnbroker in her car. Uh, It seems like they used her car to take these things down to the pawn shop. Investigators trace the receipt back to Martha Beck. And the shop returns the jewelry. After the incident, Fernandez changes. He starts yelling at her, saying vulgar things. Then on two occasions, she suspects that Martha has given her sleeping pills. And she's starting to doubt that Martha is who she says she is. Raymond had given her some confusing story about Martha being his brother-in-law, sister-in-law, some shit, but Esther thought they acted way too lovey-dovey. Also, is he not fucking his new bride? What about the no-romance deal? Are they not sleeping in the same bed? According to what Raymond says later, he did not honor the no-romance deal as much as uh, 
Martha thought he did. So I guess they were sleeping, but uh, maybe that's why, why Martha is telling him about the wife in Spain. It's messy. Uh, Esther Henny leaves Raymond May, March 31st, then with the help of a lawyer, recovers a decent chunk of the money that Ray had stolen from her. She'd lost $4,000, but later uh, that seemed like a small sum compared to what she could have lost her life. And she was glad that she had never given him what he wanted most, her teacher's pension. Later, she would characterize Charles as a charming man up until they tied the knot. Then he quickly turned into something else. She would say to investigators, throughout our marriage, I was afraid of him. He continually carried on like a raving maniac and kept yelling and screaming at me. He wanted my insurance policy and money, but I refused to turn them over to him. Raymond and Martha leave New York soon after his con does not work out here as hoped. After wandering around for a while, mostly down south, uh, brief stops in Miami, Florida, uh, Havana, Cuba, where they may have murdered some women, they end up settling in Chicago in May of 1948, uh, where they both take jobs. Martha working for the circus again as the bearded lady's back waxer this time or as a nurse at St. Luke's Hospital. From Chicago, Raymond corresponds with an Arkansas widow now named Myrtle Young, another lonely hearts woman with assets. Myrtle lived in Green Forest, Arkansas, was 42 years old, owned and operated a hotel. Uh, with Martha to side, Charles Martin marries Myrtle now in August of 1948. She'd sold, sold the hotel for $6,000, headed to Chicago to marry her new love, and on August 12th, she transferred her money from a Green Forest bank account to a joint account she opened with Martin. Oh, boy. Also bought a new car for $2,000. That is for him. After stealing $3,600 and a new car from his bride, Fernandez talks her into taking a bus to Little Rock, Arkansas somehow and gives her some fucking poison to drink as she leaves. He told her it was bicarbonate or bicarbonate soda and uh, or bicarbonate, excuse me, and it would keep her from getting car sick. And by the time her bus pulled into the station in Springfield, Missouri, Myrtle felt woozy and nauseous. She wobbled off the bus, mumbled, uh, mumbling incoherently, and is soon taken to the state hospital in Little Rock, where she dies on August 26 after spending a week in a coma. Since she was overweight, suffering from numerous physical ailments, including a cerebral hemorrhage she had suffered a few weeks earlier, her death didn't surprise anyone. By the time she died, the Lonely Hearts killers are long gone. No one knew who Raymond and Martha were or that Ray had very likely, probably just poisoned her. Mid-August, right after Myrtle left for Little Rock, Beck told Fernandez that she was pregnant with his baby. I don't think, based on what happened soon, that Ray was excited by this news. He doesn't dump her, not right away. He later admits to greatly enjoying how completely devoted to him she was. She would do anything he asked, anything at all. Uh, these two leave Chicago together, meet more lonely hearts in Tennessee, more women they may have killed who will never be named, and then head to visit Beck's sisters in North and South Carolina. In late August, they relocate to Bridgeport, Connecticut. From there, they travel to another target, a woman named Irene De La Pointe, who lived in Springfield, Vermont. Irene seemed immediately taken with Raymond, uh, but their relationship would be tumultuous, probably because Martha was always hanging around. A letter from Irene to Raymond dated on October 15th contained the enigmatic line, I guess we are just two foolish people. What is your solution and decision? Martha was jealous. She worried Ray was going to leave her for Irene, so in September, she tried to overdose on sleeping pills. Suicide attempt uh, number four now. Later that month, Beck and Fernandez moved back to New York City from Springfield, and around that time, Irene calls it off. She wrote, I've come to the conclusion that our plans had better be called off, as I find I just can't have faith in you. I called you Sunday and thought I'd proven certain things, and sure enough, as I expected, you weren't in, and not expected until very late. Where were you? I already know. So long and good luck. Raymond wrote back to Irene, who promptly sent this reply. I am always so happy to hear from you. 
Somehow, I seemed to imagine Martha would be riding by now, telling me how happy you and she were together. But I was very pleasantly surprised to receive a short note from you. In the letter, Irene would reveal that Martha had even told her about Jane Thompson, attempting to scare Irene away. But even though she'd broken up with him, Irene didn't seem that scared. She wrote, True, there would always be doubt between us after all those hideous things Martha told me. Even implied you intended to do away with me, as you did with Jane, after you succeeded in getting what I had. Then you would go away and enjoy yourself with her, your only true love. Irene concluded, You skunk. But I love you, darn it. Well, darling, so long. It's weird the way she writes this. It sounds like she might have believed that Ray was going to kill her after taking all her money, but that she wasn't like that mad about it. Oh, you skunk, you, you rascal. You don't have to lie to me anymore, love. I know you're going to kill me after taking all I have and running away with another woman. I'm no fool. I knew the whole time, but darn it. I love you, you stinker. Dagnabbit, I sure wish you weren't so cute. Cute enough to slip my throat in my sleep and have me waking up, bleeding out, but still not be upset with you. Oh, heck. You could pop my eyeballs out with a rusty spoon, and I'd only be sad I couldn't see your handsome face anymore, you naughty little bunny. Uh, now it was just Beck and Fernandez again, and things were still not surprisingly a little rocky with these two. After an argument about Irene, Beck attempted to shoot herself. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to be cold, but did she? Did she attempt to shoot herself? She's constantly, supposedly, attempting suicide. Uh, did she uh, attempt to shoot herself, or did she want Ray to think she was going to shoot herself? She's fucking really bad when it comes to taking herself out. This is five supposed attempts now. Like, I picture her screaming and crying, Don't you dare take another step towards me, Raymond! I'll do it! I'll shoot myself! But while she's saying this, she's holding an unloaded gun uh, backwards against her head. I'm serious! Goodbye, cruel world! And then when Raymond doesn't do anything, she's furious. How dare you not try to save me! Oh, baby, uh, you have the pistol pointed over at the vase. Your finger wasn't even on the trigger. And we don't have any bullets for that pistol. Um, this attempt does not keep Ray around. She moves in with her sister in North Carolina, arriving there on November 1st. But just two days later, gets a phone call from Ray. Uh, he said he wanted her back, these two. So on November 3rd, she meets up with him in his New York apartment. My God. Uh, oh, also, she's no longer pregnant. She induced a miscarriage in North Carolina. And I strongly feel, even though it's not stated in pl- explicitly in sources, that this is how they got back together. Ray didn't want kids, right? So no big whoops. She just gives herself an abortion and begs Ray to take her back. Anything for sweet baby Ray, anything for her precious angel. And now these two get right back to scamming. Uh, Two months later, after maybe killing a few more women here and there, on January 1st, 1949, the Lonely Hearts meet Janet Fay, the 66-year-old New York widow, little older victim here, uh, uh, topped Raymond's uh, Raymond's list of potential victims. While Martha remained behind in the hotel, Charles Martin visits Fay to try and ascertain if she really has the money he thinks she has. Convinced she does, in part by a large diamond ring she wore, Raymond lured uh, Faye to a residence he had and he'd rented, pretended what he had owned, in Valley Stream, a little town on Long Island. But the scam doesn't go as hoped. Martha will later recount what went down. She said to prosecutors uh, much later, she came to New York City with us, and on January 4th, she seemed to be getting suspicious. So we had decided that we had better get her out of the way. I hit her with a hammer, and then Fernandez strangled her with a silk scarf. We placed the body in a trunk and took it over to his sister's house, but the sister knows nothing about this crime or any other. We left the trunk and body there until January 21st when we rented a house. I don't know where the house is, but could take you there if we were in the New York area. Fernandez and I then moved the trunk over to the rented house. Fernandez dug a hole in the basement and we buried the body in the hole, and I believe he refinished the basement floor with plaster of Paris. We went back to the house every day to check on the hardening of the floor in the basement and to create the impression in the neighborhood that we had moved in. 
Uh, so yeah, so there you go. Irene got wise to their scam, so she got the hammer. Uh, we'll go over a lot more details about this murder once we get to their trial, and Raymond and Martha both give some versions of how and why Janet was murdered. Just days later, it's on to the next target. January 12, 1949, 31-year-old widow Delaphine Downing wrote a letter to the allegedly affluent New Yorker Charles Martin. Delaphine was the youngest daughter of rancher Martin Van Buren Price and grew up alongside her three older sisters, Zora, Zella, and Esther, on a 3,300-acre ranch near Palisade, Nebraska. She had graduated in the class of 1934, a pie-faced girl with curly brunette hair, parted on the side, beaming a wide grin. Friends and family described her as rather old-fashioned. And funny to me to hear that term used to describe someone who graduated high school in 1934. Delaphine wasn't some typical modern and wild 1930s girl. No, sir. She was old-fashioned. If a man took her out on a date, she expected him to show up on a horse. If she asked for a glass of water, she expected you to walk past the sink and go draw uh, fresh water from the well. Uh, Here's why they really said that. She didn't use makeup and dress like a schoolgirl, and she never wore pantyhose, silk uh, stockings, or garters. After graduating, the 17-year-old taught at a prairie school near home for years. Then in the summer of 1942, she visited her sister in Los Angeles and fell in love with a dashing young GI named Roland Downing. They would write each other for almost two years before marrying in October of 1944 during one of his furloughs. After his discharge from the Army, the newlyweds settled in Roland's hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan. They lived with his parents while house hunting, eventually settling into a five-room bungalow at 3435 Byron Center Road in Wyoming Township, large suburb of Grand Rapids, south of the city. Uh, Roland took a job as a truck driver until he could save enough money to start his own auto shop. On June 6, 1946, the couple welcomed a daughter, Raynell, uh, but then the fairy tale would end. Just a little over a year after Raynell's birth, on a dreary November morning, a passenger train smashed into Roland's truck, throwing him 90 feet into the air and killing him. Man, fucking 90 feet. The accident left Delaphine to raise her daughter alone on nothing more than a monthly life insurance payment of $125. Uh, she was devastated. She told friends and family she would never marry again. But secretly, after about a year, she did join a Lonely Hearts Club. As 1948 turned into 1949, she was lonely, living a thousand miles from her hometown, but optimistic when it came to a second chance for love. And then she got a reply to one of her Lonely Hearts Club letters in the form of Charles Martin. Uh, They'd made contact before Christmas. Delphine was thrilled to be talking to a man claiming to be a wealthy New Yorker. She didn't bat an eye when Martin requested a recent photograph and a lock of her hair. Hair part. That's fucking weird, right? Can you imagine honoring your quest like that on Tinder? Oh, thanks for swiping right. Uh, so excited to meet up. Before we head out for drinks, is there any way you could send me just a lock of your hair to the address I've listed below? Not a big lock, of course. I'm not, I'm not a maniac. Just a, just a little taste of what I'm going to get to sniff when I get to see you. Uh, Ray replied with a Christmas card. Then on January 12th, she sent him another letter and some pubes he'd requested. Mostly from the front, a couple little guys from the back. Nothing crazy. Nothing crazy. Maybe three, four dozen front butt locks, five or six lone lady butt hairs, and well, and, and also a vaginal smudge. Uh, you know those little perfume and cologne sampler test strips you can get from a lot of stores? Picture a bigger one of those that a, a classy lady just pushes her vagina down upon. Just make a little smudge. Harmless little moisture stamp. Think of it as a fingerprint for a labia. Just a little taste so Chuck knows what he's getting into. Oh, and then just one more thing. Charles had also requested a bra she had worn on a hot day. Once she really, you know, worked up a sweat in, just send it over on wash. No big deal. Just want to know, uh, you know, how that tit sniffs. 
Damn, tit sweat snips, tit snit. Just get a little, just get a little tit snit. No, a little tit sweat. Not a big deal. And of course, along with the bra, a few dirty socks. See what kind of the, see what kind of dirty little piggies he's gonna be working with. That's all. And of course, that's all bullshit. You knew that when I, if you didn't know before, you, you knew when I said tit snit or whatever I said. Uh, no, she only sent the hair locket over. And then she did send the following letter. Dear Charles, thank you for your thoughtful Christmas greetings. Christmas was busy, but the little afterwards gives me such an empty, lonely feeling. New Year's Eve, I kept the neighbor's children so they could go out and they were sleeping peacefully. The only noise was when the dog howled at midnight. I've been having trouble with my old car. Maybe I should have bought a new one. But I hate to spend so much when it could be used for Raynell's future. Do you like children, Charles? I hope you do. Because if we continue to correspond, I will mention Raynell often. I have a nice two-stall garage and it is still full of my husband's tools. But I am getting many things sold. I live outside the city limits in a nice section. I hope I don't break the rules of friendship correspondence by writing you before you have time to consider my last letter. Sincerely, Delphine Downing. And this is clearly just so fucking sad, right? Delphine seems like a good person. Good mom who had been dealt a cruel blow when her husband died so young. Uh, soon, Delphine will get a response, not the one she'd expected. Uh, Charles informs he'll be coming out to visit instead of just continuing to correspond from afar. On January 23rd, 1949, Delphine waits anxiously. This is the day that Charles said he would arrive. And then sure enough, he does. He's at the door. When she opens it, she sees a skinny, balding man with a fedora in his hand. And there was a larger woman next to him. Ray introduced her as his sister, Martha Martin, though Delphine didn't think there was much resemblance. They were the same heart, height, but Martha was pasty white and portly while Charles was skinny and tan. They were staying, he said, at the Rowe Hotel. Delphine invited them in. Within a few days, Charles uh, really buttered Delphine up and she invited the two of them to stay with her in one of her five bedrooms. And then by February 2nd, Delphine Downing has agreed to become Mrs. Charles Martin. She would proceed to stun friends and relatives by telling them that the marriage had already occurred. No one was more shocked by that news than her best friend, Mrs. Lawrence Sullivan, who had been Delphine's shoulder to lean on during the death of her husband. Mrs. Sullivan smelled something fishy. He just didn't look or act the part, she would say later. And she didn't like the way that Delphine had started ignoring her friends when the Martins were around. The isolation was starting to look purposeful. The neighborhood wives, led by Mrs. Sullivan, carefully jotted down the license plate, good for her, of Charles Martin's car, uh, called Kent County Sheriff Hugh Blacklock, who telephoned New York authorities and discovered that that car belonged to a man named Raymond Fernandez. Now she is obviously much more suspicious and worried. Who the fuck is this grifter? Then Mrs. Sullivan contacts the FBI. I love Mrs. Sullivan. And they say they didn't have anything on Raymond. Uh, Delphine hosted a wedding party on February 2nd now to celebrate with friends and neighbors. Mrs. Sullivan attends and will later remember that it wasn't a very jovial party, though she didn't know why. Delphine didn't seem to want to discuss the supposed marriage ceremony, uh, the one that actually hadn't happened. Mrs. Sullivan's suspicions further peak now. So she phones Delphine's former father-in-law, Ralph Downing, says that she is worried about Raynell's welfare. Meanwhile, Delphine and Charles are on their way to her hometown of Palisade, Nebraska to share the good news. There, Delphine will explain to family how she met Charles, spinning an elaborate lie about the uh, true nature, you know, disguising the true nature of their introduction. Upon hearing of her sister's visit, Zora uh, travels to the family homestead. During the two days she spent with the honeymooners, she heard all about Delphine's fairy tale romance. Delphine told Zora that Mrs. Martha Martin, a trained nurse, assisted at the birth of Ray Nell. They remained close, and when Della began to yearn for companionship months after Roland's death, the nurse introduced her to her brother, Charles. That bullshit story seemed plausible enough and Charles went out of his way to seem like a friendly, uh, a family-friendly man. He would tell Raynell to come give daddy a kiss all the time. Uh, Della's family thought this was a nice show of affection. 
until his father thought that she had found herself a fine man. After a two-week visit, the trio heads back to Grand Rapids, making a slight detour so that Delphine can introduce Charles to another sister, Esther. Charles charmed Esther as well. I'm wondering, uh, what do these people think that Chuck did for work? How does he have all this fucking time just to gallivant around the country? I think he told him he had family money or let them assume that. But also, why the fuck is Della's supposed nurse friend, Martha, a woman that no one had ever heard of before, why is she tagging along for all this? How was she able to supposedly take all this time off? Always so much easier to point out problems in situations like this when you're not involved and not in the middle of it all and just, you know, looking at it from way in the future. I do get that. Uh, When they all got back to Grand Rapids, Delaphine started making plans to move to New York. Martha and Charles helped Delaphine pack her things, loading trucks full of linens, carpets, and drapes. In the meantime, Della begins to liquidate her assets, uh, assets, which included the uh, Byron Center Road home and three lots of land. She agreed to sell her house and informed the buyers that they could move in anytime after March 1st. Now her real estate agent, Leo Ide, smells a rat. He later recalled, Fernandez seemed very anxious and showed his disappointment when the down payment amounted only to $275. With the down payment Delaphine received from the sale of her home, she and Martin established a joint bank account into which she deposited $1,300 and he deposited $2,700. Then they have a fight when Delaphine wants to take out two big withdrawals of money for her sisters. One for $800, another one for $1,500. And I will say, that does seem like a lot to pull out right away. (laughs) That's a big chunk of the pie. Uh, She figured that since she would soon be the wife of a wealthy New Yorker, though, she could afford acts of generosity like that. But Charles Martin disagreed. And then sometime on the afternoon of Saturday, February 26th, not long after this fight, Delaphine Downing and her daughter disappear. That same day, Charles and Martha Martin uh, head into the South Beltline hardware store and buy several dozen one-pound packages of plaster of Paris, saying that Martha had recently bought a house in Wyoming Township and needed to uh, do some cement work for renovations. So, you know, not a good look when this comes out later. By the evening of February 27th, Mrs. Sullivan had not heard from her best friend in over 24 hours, and she's getting worried. She'd seen her on Friday evening, talked to her on Saturday afternoon, but after that, nada. When she dialed her friend's number on Sunday, Martha answered, said in an abrupt deadpan tone that Delaphine was not home and gave no details as to where she might be or you know when she would head back. As Sunday passes into Monday, Mrs. Sullivan grows more and more worried. From her kitchen window, she notices Martin and his sister stuffing Della's new car with suitcases. She relays her concerns to Ralph Downing, Della's former father-in-law, and to Evelyn Burt, another friend. Burt promptly telephones the Kent County Sheriff's Department while Downing contacted the Wyoming Township Police Department. Both departments immediately dispatch a team of officers to the Downing bungalow. For all four men, the simple missing person case would quickly become a career-defining moment. Wyoming Township Police Officers Elmer, Al, Boss, and John Vanderband, along with Kent County Sheriff's Deputies Clarence Randall and James Tuey, arrive at the Downing household at 3435 Byron Center Road at about 10 p.m. the evening of Monday, February 28, 1949. City Police Department itself wasn't even 10 years old yet. It had begun in 1941 with a force of only seven officers, three working full-time. Vanderband, who was 35, had a day job as a carpenter before he joined the force. 31-year-old Elmer uh, Boss joined the department in 1948. Most of the time, they were busy with nothing more than traffic violations and drunk drivers. But not tonight. When they arrived at the Downing Bungalow, Vanderband and Boss searched the 1949 model sedan with the New York tag. Packed suitcases were crammed into the back seat. And the glove box contained registration in the name of Raymond Martinez Fernandez. After studying the car, Vanderband and Boss join deputies Randall and Tui and walk up to the front door. The door opens to reveal a man wearing a three-piece suit. 
a man with a long indentation that ran down the right side of his forehead, what looked to be a healed skull fracture, right? That accident, it was a bad one. A woman stood next to him wearing a dark blue dress stacking a column of suitcases. The man identified himself uh, identified himself as Charles Martin, asked Martha to get his ID from a dresser drawer in one of the bedrooms, and then he stumbled trying to explain why the name on the car's registration was different. Also said the Delphine had left on an eastbound train the previous Friday, asking them to watch over her home while she took Raynell to visit some relatives in Detroit. All of this didn't explain the stack of suitcases in the foyer, though. The police now quickly suspect that they have caught Charles Martin in the act of skipping town with some of Delaphine's property, maybe her money, too. Looking around the house, down in the cellar, Vanderband and Boss make a disturbing, disturbing discovery. A patch of wet concrete with a pipe jutting out of the center. Pipe was not connected to anything. It looked like someone tried to make it look like they were doing a home renovation project. Vanderband and Boss now put the supposed siblings in the back seat of their cruiser, take them to police headquarters for further questioning. Randall and Tui stay behind to look around a bit more. At the police station, officers frisk Charles and find a bankroll containing $4,230 in his pockets. Real suspicious. And also a list containing 17 names and addresses. Four of them had a pencil check mark in the margin next to them, including the first name on the list, Janet Fay. Suspicions are raised further. Investigators don't know what's really going on yet, but they know that something shady is going on. Within an hour, a platoon of investigators are at the house. Officers Vanderband and Boss, Chief Lay Slater, his counterpart, Kent County Sheriff Hugh M. Blacklock, Kent County Coroner Paul W. Bloxham, and Grand Rapids Herald photographer Keith Strofall all crowd into the basement. To clear enough space, they shove aside a U.S. Army footlocker with the name Downing stenciled on its lid, as well as a large stainless steel wash bin or wash basin, which was filled with muddy brown water. Source of the muddy water was clear. The area had a high water table, meaning the basements flooded periodically. Whoever had dug the hole had probably used the basin to bail out water before filling it with cement. But the cement was still soft. Guys had a real bad feeling about this. Vanderband and Boss, they start hacking away into the concrete. Two hours later, Vanderband and Boss have managed to reveal a hole in the original concrete floor about two feet wide by four feet long, filled to the edge with water, the color and consistency of chocolate milk. Bloxham leaned over the hole, jabbed a cane into the small pond now. The end of the cane struck something solid. Strofall uh, leans over to capture the moment on film, but there was still not enough light to see what was truly in the hole. Meanwhile, on the floor above, Randall and Tui are searching the rest of the house. They uh, rifle through a bureau uh, drawers, empty suitcases packed by Martin and his sister. One suitcase had in it a 45 automatic pistol matching the description of a service pistol that Roland Downing brought back from the war. In the early hours of March 1st, 1949, investigators now pull the mud-streaked, freshly dead body of Delaphine Downing wrapped in a blanket from the watery grave in her basement. Also in the blanket, a blood-stained pillow with a neat hole in the center. Uh, a crimson uh, patch, large pair of tongs apparently used to lower the bundle into the hole. Bloxham made a cursory examination on the spot. He cut the rope around the bag, gently unfurled the canvas to reveal Downing's body, clad only in her undergarments, doubled over like a diver in a jackknife position. Her hands had been bound in front of her with another length of rope. The corpse contained no marks of violence other than the hole in the center of her forehead, made by a bullet from a large caliber weapon, like a 38 or a 45 caliber handgun, the apparent cause of death. Blacklock and Boss searched for the fatal bullet in the watery grave, but failed to find it. Based on the condition of the body, she had died late Saturday afternoon or early Saturday evening. So where was little Raynell? They keep looking around the house. Meanwhile, back at the station, investigators now inform Charles Martin that they have found Downing's body. Up until that point, Martin had been vigorously maintaining his innocence, right? But now he grew quiet. His body slumped, 
the wind had been taken out of his, I still might get out of town sale. His smile evaporated and his shoulders rolled forward. When they asked him where Raynell was, he replied in a hoarse whisper, in the little green box. Vanderband and Boss race back to 3435 Byron Center Road. Joined by other investigators, they form a circle around Roland Downing's footlocker. At about 18 inches square, the box seemed too small to hold a 21-month-old body. Bloxham lifts the lid, and a Grand Rapids Herald reporter would later describe the scene. A pink baby blanket on top wrote the last chapter of the sordid story. The body had been jackknifed into the tiny box, and it was bound cruelly with wire. Coroner Bloxham said it was still limp and warm when he received it. Jesus. The condition of the body indicated that Raynell had died sometime late Monday afternoon or early Monday evening, just a few hours before officers arrived. Raynell's murderer had smashed her in the head either just before or just after she died. But the absence of bruising suggested it was just after, as if her murderer had battered her with a blunt object to ensure that she had died or more gruesome to force her remains into this tiny footlocker. Raynell's cause of death was asphyxiation from inhaling some mud at the bottom of the wash basin. She'd been drowned in the same water her mother had just been buried under. Uh, the killer had forced her head either into the flooded hole or the wash tub and held her underwater. Then she had been beaten into the box her father had brought back from the war. Back at the station, Charles Martin is now ready to give it all up. He admits his real name is Raymond Fernandez and his sister is actually his lover, Martha Beck. Randall and Tui uh, tucked both Beck and Fernandez into the backseat of a cruiser, drive them to downtown Grand Rapids now, where they walk through the doorway leading into the Kent County Jail. Gertrude Vandenboss, the 21-year-old veteran jail matron, began her, uh, was beginning her last week on the job, and her successor, Mildred Bellows, escorted Beck to the women's cells on the third floor. Raymond Fernandez joined the general population on the second floor. It would be a short night for both. While the two suspects sweated it out in jail, reporters from across the Midwest raced to be the first to break the story. At 9.30 a.m., March 1st, Kent County Prosecutor Roger O. McMahon addressed Beck and Fernandez in the corridor outside of the conference room where the interrogations would occur. He allegedly made them a promise he would have a hell of a time keeping in the following weeks. By this time, everyone, including the suspects, knew they had been caught red-handed. There was no beating those charges. But McMahon didn't just want a confession about the Downing murders. He had heard that Martha Beck had been saying for the last couple of hours that these murders were just the latest in a, quote, string of murders. She had mentioned a name, Janet Fay, a widow who had disappeared in January. McMahon also heard about the list they'd found with Janet's name in the top, and now he wants a full story. According to both Beck and Fernandez, McMahon made them a promise they could not refuse. If they confessed to all of their crimes, then they and their signed confessions would remain in Michigan. Fernandez later recalled in his typically rambling fashion, he said he told us that he didn't know anything, but according to the picture of what had happened in Michigan, he assumed that something else had happened in different states or even in Michigan, that we were going to be punished in Michigan, that if we are to make a clean slate when we did leave prison, assuming that we were to be punished there, that if we confessed everything we did, all the records would be cleared. And he promised that nothing would be held against us, but just clear the records. All right. <laughs> McMahon may have known uh, when he made this promise that it was an empty promise. There was no way that Michigan could win an extradition battle with New York, where Janet Faye died. Uh, either way, to Beck and Fernandez, it seemed like the deal of a lifetime. They thought they could avoid Sing Sing and the electric chair in New York, trading it for the Michigan State Prison. Right? And the maximum penalty in Michigan was life with the possibility of parole after 20 years. So if they took this deal, Fernandez could maybe walk out of prison as a free man in his 50s, and Beck could be out before the age of 50. So they agreed to tell everything. And now in separate rooms, they recount a litany of crimes. 
Beginning at approximately 10.30 a.m., the interrogations consumed the rest of the morning, most of the afternoon. Uh, Lula Parks, McMahon's secretary, and the county's chief stenographer took rigorous notes. McMahon also allowed a small audience of reporters to sit in and listen to the bizarre story. He described the reason behind his unconventional tactic, telling a Detroit Times writer, 10 years from now, I don't want anybody to say that these confessions were beaten out of these people. This way, there are plenty of witnesses to prove that nobody laid a finger on them. All right. I like it. Both Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez would make full confessions to the murders of Delphine and Janet Fay. Raymond would say that it wasn't theft with Delphine. It was a crime of passion. He said they had begun arguing on Saturday afternoon due to the money that Delphine wanted to withdraw from their account for her sisters and also due to another very different factor, a $150 toupee that Raymond had purchased in downtown Grand Rapids that afternoon. Delphine said she didn't like the way it looked on Raymond. <laughs> Seriously, this is what he says. He said she became hysterical and began to hurl silverware at him. What? Did that fucking happen? I mean, I get her not liking Ray's new hairpiece, but going full here come the spoons motherfucker over a wig. What were you thinking, Charles? Do you want people to think I've married a circus clown? Is that it? Did you want everyone to think that you've skinned a poodle and stapled its pelt to your head? Why are you doing this to me? I wish I knew what that wig looked like. At that point, his confession, he also added that Martha Beck didn't know how to take a hint, that he didn't love her anymore, and that she was too clingy. He'd say, I liked her, but she wouldn't go away. She said when I was really settling down, she would go away, but she didn't. This last one, Delphine, was the nicest. She really was a very nice woman. She was the one I wanted, but I didn't love Martha. I couldn't get her off my system. I tried to make her go away, but whatever she wanted, she would whimper and cry and make me do what she wanted. I mean, he could have gotten rid of her, but I don't think he's lying about the whimpering and the crying. I mean, he's a piece of shit, but she also sounds like she was a clingy nightmare. Uh, he said that Martha was jealous of Delphine, talked her into um, downing 14 uh, phenobarbital tablets, but the non-lethal dose of downers just put her into a deep slumber. At that point, Raymond said he realized that Delphine would make a beeline for the nearest police station when she woke up. So, you know, he had to. He had to shoot her by wrapping her late husband's army issue 45 in a baby blanket and shooting the widow at point blank range as Raynell watched from a corner of the bedroom. What? Why would you do that in front of little Raynell? Maybe because he was a conscienceless predator who did not care who he hurt. Uh, he said that he and Martha then hauled the corpse to the basement. And now at this point, McMahon interrupted with a question. He asked, if they didn't plan the crime, why did Raymond have a pickaxe and several packages of concrete on hand? Raymond said that he had recently constructed a new bathroom in Delaphine's house. Hmm. The answer sounded canned to McMahon. Uh, after burying the body, Raymond proceeded, then took Raynell out for, uh, proceeded to take Raynell, excuse me, out for dinner and a movie. Uh, totally. As one does after shooting the kid's mom in the head in front of them. He said he tried to be nice to the little girl, but by Sunday, she wouldn't stop crying for her mother. So loudly, Raymond thought the neighbors were going to hear. In an attempt to shut her up, he said, now they took her out for a Sunday drive. How sweet. And what a great idea. A Sunday drive. How could that not get a toddler to stop crying for they're just murdered in front of their mother? When that seemingly foolproof plan didn't work, they now took her to a local pet store and bought her a cocker spaniel puppy. And that worked for a little bit. But when the puppy scratched her, they immediately returned it and she started crying again. Uh, totally, that makes a lot of sense. You get a puppy to stop a girl from crying about her dead mom. It works. She does stop crying. But then the little cocker spaniel puppy scratches her. So thinking clearly, you now take away the girl's brand new comfort animal. These two, so fucking smart. I can't believe they didn't get away with uh, crimes forever. Now, shockingly, Raynell's crying keeps them up all night Saturday. So on Sunday morning, they discuss putting it down with its murder. Not her, it. 
but neither wanted to do the deed. In the meantime, they went to the bank, withdrew all the money from the joint account. When they went back to the house, Raymond said Martha had made up her mind. Fernandez explained, when we came back, Martha said she was going to drown the baby and took her down into the basement. In a little while, I heard crying and ran down and said, let her be. Don't let her suffer anymore. God, what a saint. Never fun to be killed by an insane pair of lovers. But if you're going to be killed, you'd be so lucky to be killed by these gems, especially Ray. I wonder how many people asked Ray if he'd been named after a ray of sunshine. So bright, so warm. Raymond said the sight of Beck holding the little girl up by the legs and forcing her head into the wash basin scared him. So he ran upstairs. Martha Beck taunted after him. What's the matter? Why don't you come back down? God, I feel terrible for Ray. He didn't want any of this. He'd been bullied this whole time. Somehow, through the grace of God, Ray regains his composure while naughty, horrible Martha finishes killing a toddler. He uh, then heads back down to the cellar, mixes up a batch of cement. Martha now ties up Raynell's body with wire, shoves it into her, uh, into her father's footlocker and encases it with a thin layer of cement. Then they head upstairs, wash up and go to another movie. And sure, you know what? At, at first glance, that might seem cold and a bit sociopathic. But when someone told a young Raymond once there was no use crying over spilt milk, by God, he took that to heart. He listened, you know, and carpe diem. He always liked that one. I bet he read a lot of books written by Einstein and other geniuses too and used their wisdom to guide his life. Like the Einstein quote, life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. Don't look back. What's done is done. Enjoy that movie. Raymond said when they got home from the movies, they began packing. And that's when the police interrupted them. Martha Beck offered a slightly different version of events. Like Raymond, she said that the catalyst for the murder came when Delaphine reacted to the new toupee at about 2 p.m., but on Sunday, not Saturday, like Raymond had said. I gotta say, I was not expecting the toupee part of this story to be true when I first went over all of this. The hairpiece, which he had bought from the Bossier hair shop, made him look younger, and Beck said that Delaphine got suspicious as to his true intentions with this wig. Was he using it to try and pick up someone else? She said that Raymond decided to take drastic action after Della wigged out over the wig. She said, Fernandez asked me if I had had enough sleeping pills to put her out of the way for good. I thought I had. I had 14, uh, one and a half gram or one and a half grain phenobarbital pills. Mrs. Downing didn't want to take them, but did and quickly became drowsy and fell asleep in the back bedroom. About 6 p.m. She became restless and apparently wanted to wake up, but just couldn't. Raymond said I had better shoot her. He took a gun, wrapped it up in two baby blankets and shot her. The sound was very muffled, and if I had not been looking for it, I wouldn't have heard it. Then she said Raymond darted into the backyard to make sure no neighbors had hurt. Then he came inside, went down to the basement, and began digging a hole while Martha rolled the body into a blanket. When he got through, she continued, he came upstairs and helped me carry the body to the basement. The hole was pretty full of water, and I bailed out two tubs of water before we could put the body in. Then we wrapped the body in a blanket, placed a bloody pillow under the head, and placed it in the hole. Raymond filled the hole up with concrete and we cleaned up and took the little girl to a movie and to get something to eat. The whole job took about four hours. These fucking dumb monsters. They really took that little girl to a fucking movie after that. Sorry about your mom. Uh, let me make it up to you. You like popcorn? Uh, she said it was Raymond's decision to kill Raynell. At first, Martha explained, we decided to keep the little girl and take her back to New York. We decided that Fernandez would write Mrs. Downing's parents from time to time on the typewriter and enclose pictures of the baby and sign their daughter's name. We felt this would allay any suspicion for a long time. Martha said that seemed like a good plan, but then Raymond realized he would have to explain to his family why he had a random kid all of a sudden. When he couldn't come up with a credible story, he decided, well, we just got to kill her. And he made Martha do it after they got back from the bank. She said she undressed Raynell, carried her to the basement, then thrust her head into the wash basin, 
Holding the child by the heels, Martha leaned forward, using her body weight to keep the thrashing child from coming up for air. Holy shit. She said, without a hint of emotion, the baby struggled so much I could hardly hold her. So I wrapped it in a blanket and I held it all the way under for 15 or 20 minutes. Then Ray cemented her in the box. The listeners in the room, as she is saying this, apparently all winced at her transition from her to it. Yeah, I bet. At some point afterwards, uh, Martha said she had bashed Raynell's head in with a heavy object just to be sure she was dead. Like the others, John Vanderband listened to the confession in stunned silence. He said later that he balled up his fist so tightly as he's listening to this, his knuckles turned white. And he said, after hearing about the baby, uh, he whispered to another person in the room, it makes me want to smash them. Yeah, it'd be bad not to feel that way. Uh, the interrogations lasted most of the afternoon, ended as the sun began to set. Then Martha and Raymond were returned to their cells. After watching their confessions, the four key characters in the investigation, Randall, Tui, Vanderban, and Boss, returned to 3435 Byron Center Road, Delaphine Downing's house, to look for additional evidence. Chief Slater had ordered that the home be sealed and posted an armed guard to prevent any tampering with the crime scene. So when the four officers entered the scene, it appeared exactly as they had left it. One unopened suitcase they hadn't examined carried a mysterious shipping label. From Janet J. Fay to Mrs. Lester Hubbard, 13 Providence Place, Albany, New York. It appeared that the case filled with clothes supposedly from Janet Fay and addressed to her sister was a red herring that Raymond intended to drag across the trail leading to his New York victim. Even as he fleeced Delaphine Downing, he continued to cover his tracks by sending some false proof of life in the form of personal items to Janet's sister. Maybe he wasn't quite as dumb as I was making him out to be a little bit ago. Uh, Now they found something else. A list of 132 names from the list of Raymond's favorite love clubs. At the time, reporters assumed that most of these women had to be dead. Martha Beck's suitcases contained several items of jewelry, including a pair of gold earrings. The earrings would become a major piece of evidence against her, as they belonged to Janet Fay uh, of New York, uh, or excuse me, a New York newspaper would later nickname them Golden Handcuffs. Officer Randall also noted that the serial number of Raymond's typewriter uh, jotted that down, uh, hoping that the information would help connect Raymond to different crimes. That night, deputies would also escort Martin Price, Delaphine's dad, to the Byron Center Road bungalow. Got that poor bastard. Martin had traveled up from Palisade, Nebraska to claim the bodies and bring them home for a funeral. He went into the house to find clothes for the bodies to be buried in. Jesus, what a terrible thing to have to do. He also booked the sheriff, uh, or also, excuse me, asked the sheriff if he could visit Raymond in jail and Sheriff Blacklock turned him down, which makes sense. Nothing good was going to come from that visit. I mean, I imagine he wanted to beat that dude to death or more sad, wanted to just to ask the guy why he fucking did it. Wanted to tearfully ask Ray why he killed his daughter and granddaughter. While Price searched for suitable funerary funeral dresses for Delaphine and Raynell, Vanderband discovered a satchel crammed with correspondence, including a trove of letters Fernandez had received from various lonely hearts across the country. The sheaves of paper included what appeared to be a last will and testament of sorts signed by Jane Wilson Thompson, along with several blank sheets containing curiously nothing but Thompson's signature. Thompson was a lonely heart who mysteriously died while on a honeymoon with Fernandez in Spain. A lot of names to keep track of. Uh, her uh, will had left everything to Fernandez. Meanwhile, at the courthouse, prosecutors were figuring out how they would be charging their suspects. Prosecutors wanted them to face the death penalty, but that was a tricky subject in Michigan at the moment where it was currently illegal. Uh, there was a big push to reinstate it, but it hadn't been reinstated. Uh, the last legal execution performed under Michigan law had occurred before statehood over a century earlier. Stephen Simmons, who murdered his wife in a drunken rage, went to the scaffold in 1836. Wayne County Sheriff Thomas Knapp didn't want to conduct the hanging if there was going to be one, so the job would go to Uncle Ben Woodworth, the county coroner, and a local hotel operator if it were to occur. 
I love this. I picture this guy being a coroner and checking guests into a uh, local hotel, right? And he's going to have to hang someone. <laughs> Sorry about that. I hope you weren't waiting long. <laughs> Had to step away from the desk for a bit longer than I uh, thought I would to hang a fellow and his girlfriend. I'm uh, checking in. Uh, less than a decade after Michigan became a state in 1846, lawmakers outlawed the death penalty for state crimes while retaining a death penalty in cases of treason. Federal authorities also maintained the power to execute prisoners for federal offenses, which did lead to the 1938 hanging of a convicted bank robber, Anthony Chipatoris, inside the walls of a Michigan correctional facility in Milan, Michigan. So I guess it hadn't been that long since someone had been killed in Michigan, just not executed by the state. Now many state legislators, uh, legislators want to bring the death penalty back. They almost will, but they won't get quite enough votes. Back at the prison on Tuesday night, still on March 1st, Raymond Fernandez will now describe where to find Janet Faye's hidden grave to a detective on the phone in Nassau, or yeah, Nassau County, New York. He said that after the murder of Janet Faye, he and Martha had trussed up the body in a knees-to-chest position, jackknifed, as the papers described it, and tried to fit it into a trunk. But the body wouldn't fit, so they stuffed it into a closed closet instead. They returned later with a larger trunk. From the apartment in Valley Stream, they took the trunk, corpse inside, to a residential building in the Bronx where Raymond's sister lived. They hauled the trunk to a storage area behind a first-floor restaurant and left it there while Raymond managed to secure a more permanent location. His sister, Lena Kano, had no idea what was inside the trunk. Soon, Raymond would find the final location. It would be in South Ozone Park, where he rented a house from James and Lillian Lloyd for 110 bucks. Later, Lillian would remember that Raymond was so eager to move in, he personally helped her transport some of her things to her mother's place. Once they were alone in the house, Raymond and Beck dug a hole, then mixed a 25 bag of cement. They removed Janet's corpse, dumped it into the hole, covered it with a layer of sand, and capped it with concrete. Then Raymond used a trowel to shape the cement until it looked indistinguishable from the rest of the floor. Two days after moving in, Raymond gave James Lloyd back the keys, said he decided not to rent it at all. Strangely, he also insisted that James do a top-to-bottom inspection to make sure everything had been the way it was, and James evidently missed the fresh patch of concrete in the basement when he did that check. So, a little flex here. So confident in his hiding-a-body concrete work that he wanted to show it off a bit, maybe. Over the phone, Raymond gave the New York police directions to the Ozone Park house. Within a few hours, detectives would storm the property with pickaxes, trying to figure out where to dig up the basement. And evidently, Raymond uh, really had done a good job. They could not tell where the uh, hole had been dug. The detectives had to call back and have him guide them to the precise location of the body. Following Fernandez's uh, directions to the spot against the basement wall by the oil furnace, detectives managed to find a crescent-shaped patch of fresher-than-the-rest cement by a hair-thin outline. Two officers broke through the patch, began digging, while assistant medical examiner Jacob Wern watched. Four feet down, under a thin layer of sand, lay the body of Janet Fay, clad in a bathrobe and folded into, a, again, a, a jackknife position. Her hair was covered with mats of sticky red blood and a cursory examination of her scalp revealed trauma caused by a blunt instrument, like a hammer. Bruising around her throat was consistent with trauma caused by someone strangling or garroting her from behind. On Wednesday, March 2nd, back in Michigan, the Grand Rapids Herald now runs a story with a photograph and headline, Crime in Cement, Picture Story of Two Slains. Uh, Raymond and Martha's pictures would quickly be featured in newspapers across the country. Also that day, Dr. Jacob Wern performs Janet Faye's postmortem. The forensic evidence showed that Janet died from strangulation, not blunt force trauma. Back in Michigan, Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez appear in front of circuit court judge Willard McIntyre. Both face two separate charges for the murders of Delaphine and Raynell Downing. A crowd of spectators squeezes into the small courtroom. They see Martha Beck in her new change of clothing, a coat and a black dress, her lips pursed as she listens to the arraignment. 
Raymond, standing beside her, seems utterly dejected, and he has a reason to be. That day, a request was made by Michigan Attorney General Stephen L. Roth, or excuse me, Stephen J. Roth, who asked for a delay in court proceedings long enough to give New York authorities time to extradite Beck and Fernandez. Ah, shit! McMahon agreed to the request. Kent County Prosecutor Roger McMahon done did double-cross these two phony fucks with his earlier promise. The state is considering the possibility of saving the Michigan taxpayers some money by sending the killers to New York to burn, McMahon told the press. But also he prepared for a Michigan trial, uh, sending both defendants to get psychological examinations. Right, just in case the extradition didn't work. Uh, they will be found legally sane. Judge McIntyre remanded the two to the Kent County Jail where they would remain while officials from Michigan and New York figured out where the criminals would go first. Reports of the day's court activity quickly spread to national papers. They were depicted in the sensationalized press as twisted and perverted souls. Fernandez, a demonic leader. Beck, his dopey sidekick. Detroit Free Press staff writer Kenneth McCormick described uh, described Fernandez as a balding male order Romeo and Beck (laughs) as his, quote, fat paramour. Ouch. Most writers peg Beck as the one with more blood on her hands. Detroit Times staff writer Jack Pickering reflected this widespread belief when he described Beck in his page one story for the March 2nd, 1949 edition as the woman who killed indiscriminately by hammer, drugs, or drowning, while referring to Fernandez as her spendthrift paramour. paramour. Apparently, paramour was a word a lot more popular back then than it is now, kind of like uh, jackknifes. Accounts often describe her as a cold uh, woman devoid of feelings, made a lot of uh, a facial tick that pulled up one corner of her mouth, saying that her, her smile, her crooked smile, was a clear sign of sociopathy. Look at, the, look at that crooked smile. Clearly, she has no conscience. Uh, or I said socio. I, I, that word always fucking throws me. <laughs> I think I know it. I know sociopath. Sociopathic. Sociopathy? I think so. Clearly, I'm sociopathy. I don't know. Uh, they made a big deal that she was uh, twice divorced, mother of two, right? She's a single mother for God's sake. Of course she, she would kill. She has no morals. Others emphasized Raymond's Casanova-like behavior, how he charmed women, oftentimes much older women as he led them to their deaths. Seeing that nobody really knew or cared who was the dominant, who was the submissive, both made for outstanding and good selling stories. One journalist even suggested that the key to understanding Fernandez was the size of the victims he chose. This brilliant journalist wrote in a uh, Detroit Times piece, Some were plump, others heavier. But in every case, weight was a characteristic common to all the women who joined the Lonely Hearts Clubs, looking hungrily for happiness and found murdering Raymond Fernandez instead. Was it their plump, generous natures which drove them to look in the blind ads of periodicals or newspapers for the road to happiness? Or were these women overweight because they tried to satisfy their appetites for affection by stuffing themselves with food? Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that in the newspapers today? This guy seems like a huge fucking asshole. Right, just what were these fat bitches thinking when they started trolling for dick in these slut clubs? They should have stayed where they were safe and where they belonged. Like, oh, you can eat buffets and donut and ice cream shops. This guy is a fucking asshole. Uh, the journalist wrote further, continuing to suggest, suggest that the women's craving for food correlated to craving for attention, making them easy marks. And of course these women were killed, just like a lion will kill the slowest gazelle. A murdering man will look for the heaviest lady. These women's friends and families, man, they're reading this shit. Uh, some journalists blame the Lonely Hearts clubs that proliferated across the country for the murders. An anonymous editorial published in the March 3rd edition of the, uh, of the Detroit Times characterized the clubs as an abominable racket and called for stronger laws that would allow postal inspectors to go after them for mail fraud. One way or another, the editorialist wrote in all caps, the Lonely Hearts flimflam should be wiped out 
At best, it is a shoddy device, a sort of cheap marriage lottery. At worst, it can be the instrument of stark tragedy and crime as in the Fernandez case. Oh boy, overact much? A few women were killed in this nasty sex-filled dating club, so let's not let anyone date like this ever again. I wonder what that writer would think of uh, Love is Blind or these other kind of shows. Uh, Back at the jail, when the interrogation continued uh, on Wednesday, March 2nd, the killers showed themselves to be much more complicated than their media caricatures. Fernandez admitted that he wasn't really a playboy in the traditional sense. He knew he didn't have good looks or excessive charm. Instead, he said, I asked women about their hometowns, what they were like, what their hobbies were, and so on. You won't believe it, he said in a soft voice, but I'm a kind man. Ah, You're right. I don't believe it, Raymond. Uh, He explained that when he met a woman through an advertisement, he lavished all of his attention on her, but he never made a move. He said, I gave them all my attention, but I never made love to these women first. I would rather just have a good time swimming, dancing, or going to the movies. But he did admit that he would sleep with most of the women uh, that he did meet up with in person. His affections extended to pretty much everyone in this interrogation, except for Martha Beck. He denied loving her at all, depicting her more as a business acquaintance. He said, she knew so much about me. I didn't dare leave her. He said that he tried to sever ties several times, you know what she did, but she always made her way back. Meanwhile, in the other interrogation room, Martha Beck also admitted that Fernandez wasn't all that good looking. So the Casanova image didn't really fit. When she was asked what did draw her to him, she said, I've often wondered. (laughs) Pretty funny. Uh, Maybe desperation was the word that she was looking for. That's what drew her to him. She was so fucking desperate to have whoever she quickly fell for stick around and just not leave her. She also said that she wanted to take the rap for their killings. She said, somehow I felt that sooner or later, all of this would come to light. I'm guilty and I'm not asking for another chance. Inter- interrogators then asked her if she felt any remorse. She said, how can you say that? I haven't had a good night's sleep since Mrs. Faye died. She said she wanted to take the blame, be found guilty of the murders, but also let Raymond walk free because she still loved him. But she denied killing anyone out of jealousy. She added, I'll always be in love with him. The only reason Ray and I remain together until the end is because we love each other. Clearly, she didn't know that he was talking a lot of shit at the same time. How fucking sad are these two? Uh, As she spoke, she stroked the three rings on her fingers, a wedding ring, an engagement ring, and a promise ring. Detectives would find out later that the uh, two of the rings belonged to Delaphine and the third belonged to Janet Faye. It appeared that Martha Beck was living in a fantasy world. In a jailhouse interview conducted between reporter Margaret Russell and Martha Beck, Uh, That Wednesday, Martha's undying devotion to Raymond was further showcased. Numerous times, she finished her thought with, I love him and always will, like an exclamation at the end of a sentence. At one point, she declared, I just wish I could take all the blame and he could be out of it all. I love him. (laughs) That's a weird thing to end sentences. I mean, yes. And then we walked to uh, the end of the street and we had to go get some groceries. I love him and I always will. Uh, I was uh, in North Carolina at that time. If I recall, I believe that was March 7th. I love him and I always will. (laughs) <laughs> it's a fucking lunatic. Uh, Beck ended the interview with a sharp rebuke of Lonely Hearts Clubs and matrimonial bureaus. She said the law ought to close them all up. I've read in the papers about frauds, embezzlements, and even murders coming out of them. All of this came from them. I like how she starts off saying that she read about <laughs> like swindles and murders. Yeah, you were fucking part of a con and murder. Multiple murders that came out of them. You didn't need to read about it. Also, she's acting like the Lonely Hearts Clubs, they're to blame. For all that she and Raymond did, you know, like as if they would have been great people otherwise, you know, as opposed to she and Raymond being fully responsible for all this shit. Uh, meanwhile, with the news of the killings on uh, newsstands across America, uh, tips and inquiries began pouring into the Kent County Sheriff's Department from fellow sheriffs uh, looking for missing women. However, these investigations will not be very fruitful. Authorities from Indiana, 
asked McMahon to ask Beck and Fernandez if they visited Virginia French, a 25-year-old mother of four who had gone missing. They denied it, and police eventually did find French unharmed. Chicago police learned that the pair had occupied a small home in the city during the summer and fall of 1948. At some point since, a new concrete floor had been poured into the basement. They dig into that. No bodies are found there either, though. Still, Prosecutor Roger McMahon uh, remains convinced that their confession was incomplete, that there are more than three bodies out there. After all, there was a list of around 100 names, 17 of them with check marks and annotations found in Fernandez's pocket. Right, uh, These were those names and notes. Jenna J. Fay, 40. 100, uh, 108 Southern Boulevard, Albany, New York, $6,000. Myra Alderman, R, number one, Mendenhall, Mississippi, $8,000. Hazel Hardy, box 6052, Yermo, California, owns property. Mrs. Ruby Davis, 119 Color Street, High Point, North Carolina, widow. Mrs. Edith Johnson, box 63, Wakefield, Nebraska, owns home and has $7,000. Agnes Diner, 8319 Lawler Street, Detroit, owns home and has $10,000. Nella Stone, R2, Mansfield, Pennsylvania, savings and car. Jane Mason, 1067 Wilson Avenue, Columbus, Ohio, 5500 Mrs. Myra Olson, 205 North Tacoma, Tacoma, Washington, home and savings. Annie Solansky, 8 Mater Street, Dorchester, Massachusetts, or uh, Dorchester, I think it's how you say it, uh, $5,000. Alice Jackson, 304 East 22nd Street, Fremont, Nebraska, home and savings. Anna B. Myers, Box 109, R4, Niles, Michigan, $5,000. Martha J. Scrodham, 622 West Jefferson, Mishawaka, Indiana. Mrs. Thomas Green, Colebrook, New York, $1,000. Mrs. Prudy Gardner, Hooks, Texas, 3500 Ollie Mitchell, Hayes, North Carolina, owns home. And finally, Grace Van Leuven, 74 Garfield, Detroit, $4,000. Right. Just like that's all these people are just, you know, numbers. What can I get from these people? Uh, But then police immediately locate Myra Alderman, second name on the list. And she denies ever answering a Lonely Hearts advertisement since the entry for Alice Jackson had the same notes as the one for Janet Faye. Investigators uh, also worried that Alice is buried somewhere under layers of concrete. There was even a missing woman in Nebraska where Alice Jackson was from at the time. But after law enforcement agencies discuss it, they realize these are two different women. Anna Myers, whose name is on the list, belonged to a Lonely Hearts Club, but never got a letter from Fernandez, supposedly. In probing the list of names, police became convinced that from Wyoming Township, Beck and Fernandez planned to travel southeast to Mansfield, Pennsylvania, where they planned to con Nella Stone out of her savings and car. And from Mansfield, they would then have returned to Michigan to con Detroiters Grace Van Leuven, 34, and Agnes Diener, or, or yeah, Denier, 36, out of their life savings. Detectives found both women alive and well at their respective addresses. Both admitted to belonging to a Lonely Hearts Club, but insisted they had never corresponded with Fernandez, leaving investigators to figure out how he learned about their net worth. Well, I think maybe that they maybe they did correspond with Fernandez, but now didn't want the media attention that might come you know, down on them if they admitted to doing that. Maybe they didn't want to be publicly linked with that creep. Uh, weirdly, Fernandez noted about Denier, uh, she had $10,000, but she was out for a good time. I didn't like her attitude. Uh, but of course, Daniel was alive. Uh, if there were bodies, they weren't appearing as quickly as law enforcement had hoped. But there was one cold case that popped up, that of Myrtle Wilson. Though Fernandez and Beck claimed that they hadn't poisoned her and that she had left willingly, McMahon, very suspicious. Thursday, March 3rd, 1949. Now, on this day, both halves of the Lonely Hearts duo will give a statement about their New York crimes to Assistant District Attorney Edward Robinson Jr. from Nassau County. A third admission that fleshes out the details of Janet Faye's demise that would lead to a fierce legal debate about the upcoming trial. 
Let's begin with Martha Beck. Her confession will become People's Exhibit 57. She agreed to sign a written confession about the murder of Janet. In her confession, uh, she said that she had slept in the same bed as Janet the night she was murdered. Maybe a little weird, but I guess uh, people did that back then, right? You go meet up with some man who brings his supposed sister like a gentleman. And then at night, the girls sleep together, keeping it classy while the man beats off alone in his bed like a gentleman. According to Beck, Janet began to panic about her money that night. Beck allegedly pleaded with Fernandez to give her back the money and get out of here. But Fernandez, she claimed, refused. Beck said she tried to calm Janet by telling her that people were asleep and she should be quiet and they'll settle things in the morning. But she said Janet replied, did you get paid for that remark? An argument quickly ensued. Beck accused Janet of being jealous. Janet said, as soon as we were married, you'll not, or as soon as we are married, you'll not live with us. And then Fernandez, who now entered the room, spoke, Martha, keep her quiet. I don't know how. Then he left the room. At this point, Beck said she went into some kind of daze. Well, how convenient. It wasn't me. It was a daze I was in. Uh, damn you, witchcraft. She said, the next thing I knew, I had the hammer in my hand and hit her. I hit her and she kind of fell sideways and she was still moaning. And I said, Ray, and I hit her again. Then Fernandez came in, choked her with his hands. When that didn't work, he fashioned a garret or, or garrot. Uh, that was her confession. And a garrot is an instrument, usually a cord or wire with handles attached at the ends used for strangling a victim, mostly used decades ago. Not a, not a word that shows up as much now. Uh, you might know what that is, but I always forget. Did investigators believe all this? No, not really. It was becoming clear to Clarence Randall, the deputy and others, that Beck just liked to talk to detectives. She talked about letters, raised to pay, books in Delphine's house, clothes, the military footlocker, anything at all. She just seemed to like having people who would listen to her. She also said that she wouldn't fight extradition, even though she had said earlier that she was scared of the electric chair. But by the end of her third interview, she just seemed tired. She said, I won't try to fight extradition. I don't want to see a lawyer or my family. It would only make things harder. My life is ended, whatever happens. I'll sign whatever they want me to sign and just let events take their course. So what was Fernandez up to? Still thinking he would never be extradited to New York, he proceeded to give an account of Janet Faye's murder that was virtually identical to Martha Beck's. He told investigators she was crying and she sobbed, I want to be with you. I told her to go to bed because she was waking up the people downstairs and she went to bed. But she came back to ask me about her money. She asked me, is my money safe? I said, it is. I have it in my pocket. I heard her whimpering and I was angry. I got up and she was kneeling down beside her bed. I asked Martha, what happened? Did you tell her anything? And she said, I don't know. She just wants her money. I said to Martha, see how you can keep the woman quiet, no matter how. And when I got back, she had kept her quiet by hitting her on the head with a hammer. I could hear the blood dripping and she was moaning at the time. She dropped down and Martha was there and she called me and I came running and turned around and the bottle of whiskey was there and I drank all of it. But then he refused to sign a written statement saying he would be signing death warrants. But at the end of the day, despite the New York confessions, McMahon felt like they had a legal obligation to try the killers for the crimes they had committed in Michigan. Governor Williams now decided to hold a public hearing the following Tuesday to determine whether or not to grant extradition. Uh, Philip Huntington, assistant to ADA Edward Robinson, planned to present the case on behalf of New York and promised that if extradited, the pair would face first-degree murder charges in the killing of Janet Faye. To succeed, Huntington would have to answer the question as to whether or not New York would return Beck and Fernandez for trial in the Downey murders should they be found innocent in a Nassau courtroom. Huntington scoured the New York law books, could find nothing that would prevent their return in such a scenario, but he could not guarantee that Beck and Fernandez wouldn't use New York courts in an attempt to fight extradition back to Michigan. This is all going to be tricky. In the days before Tuesday, March 8th, Robinson and Huntington got to work proving that Raymond and Martha would be found guilty of first-degree murder of Janet Faye if sent to New York to be tried. They scoured the correspondence between Fernandez and Delaphine, 
uh, prowling for evidence they could use in their trial. On Thursday night, the four men sat at a table in Sheriff Blacklock's office. They would work through the night and into the next morning, sifting the contents for clues and dissecting the words of every letter. By the time they'd finished the next morning, piles of paper covered the table, ashtrays heaped with cigarette butts acted as paperweights. In the early hours of March 4th, 1949, the New York attorneys presented their evidence. They had what appeared to be an official birth certificate that named Raymond Charles Martin, born in 1910 in Bridgeport, Connecticut, son of Joseph Carl Martin and Francis Marie Martin, seemed to prove that he had stolen his identity from a real person or, you know, happened to be a, a well, I, I guess it would definitely prove that. I was going to say good forger, but no, it'd be proven that it was a, taken from a real person. The cache of documents also contained a marriage certificate uh, that looked like it was issued in the state of Illinois, United, uniting Raymond C. Martin and Myrtle Young, apparently a forgery. Several sheets of stationery contained a single word surprise in Janet Faye's handwriting, along with Faye's signature at the bottom of each page. The word surprise had been bleached out, but was still faintly visible. During one of his statements, Fernandez said that he told Faye that he would play a little trick on their friends and family by sending a note announcing their nuptials with a single word surprise and then signing it this is how he tricked her into signing mostly blank paper that he could later use to conduct business in her name he could even fabricate a proof of life letter that would be sent to relatives to prove that Faye was alive as her cold body sat below a thick shelf of concrete there was also a sequence of letters that hinted that Fernandez may have committed a murder long before meeting Martha Beck letters from Irene that referenced Jane aka Jane Thompson authorities in Spain would later confirm that two days before Thompson's demise Fernandez had purchased a bottle of digitalis from a local pharmacist. Digitalis is a drug prepared from the dry leaves of foxglove that contains substances that stimulate the heart muscle. The attending physician who had certified Thompson's cause of death would admit that digitalis could mimic the symptoms she experienced in her final hours. Unfortunately, the advanced decomposition of the body would prevent that from being confirmed. In conclusion, while they could not prove it 100%, strong likelihood that Fernandez had killed her. March 6, 1949, Sunday, as the lawyers used the weekend to prepare their brief for the upcoming legal battle, Beck and Fernandez spent the weekend in the respective cells in Kent County Jail. Fernandez occupied a cell on the second floor, not allowed to socialize with other prisoners, spent his days reading magazines, lying on his cot, staring at the ceiling. Martha spent her days reading magazines as well. Guards kept a close eye on both of them, making sure uh, they didn't attempt suicide, especially Martha with her history. The two Grand Rapids Lonely Hearts killers, the nickname given to Beck and Fernandez by the press, had not spoken to one another since a brief conference with McMahon just after their arrest. Except for a fleeting moment when guards escorted Beck past Fernandez's cell during one of the myriad of the interviews they gave, they had not seen each other either. Excuse me. But now they decided to try and change that. They asked Clarence Randall, the Kent County Sheriff's deputy, if they could exchange notes and he allowed it. They would send four or five notes to the prison walls, only two of them remained intact and made it into the historical record. And the first was Martha's. Dearest Ray, just a note to let you know that I am okay. As you likely heard a few days ago, I tried to take my own life and hang myself in my cell. Fortunately, the knot didn't hold. Ha! You know too well how useless I can be when it comes to knots. I only slightly maybe bruised myself. You probably also heard how two days ago, I again tried to take my own life. It's true. I did in fact slit my wrists, and I'm sorry to scare you. But alas, I did not bleed nearly enough to expire. I did this not with a razor, but with an envelope. Technically, I paper-cutted my wrists. They did bleed, kind of, but I am fine. You also may have had yesterday's suicide attempt brought to your attention. Yes, I did, in fact, attempt to jump to my death. But only, thank the Lord in heaven, from the top bunk in my cell. I may have sprained an ankle, but I'm otherwise fine, darling. I'm okay, I'm still yours. And I'm still here, even after another suicide attempt this morning, that I'm lucky to have survived. 
It's true. I tried to burn myself alive. Fortunately, I did not have any gasoline or a lighter, or even matches. Only a magnifying glass. Luckily, it wasn't that sunny today, and direct sunlight barely enters my cell. I did seem to warm my hand up a bit where I was focusing the light, and I fear I may have one of those blisters you can't really see, but you can sure feel. And of course, this is bullshit. Uh, <laughs> sorry. sorry. I, I found it very funny when I was working on the notes, uh, thinking about someone who has no intention of killing themselves, uh, but instead just, you know, definitely wants attention and then just makes like the weakest, most obvious fake attempts to gain sympathy. So stupid, I know. Uh, here's the real letter. Dearest Ray, just a note to let you know that I'm okay and tell you, please try not to worry too much. This would have happened sooner or later. So I guess it's for the best that this has happened. My greatest desire is that you will not change in your thoughts towards me. But even though you do, I will understand. Yeah, but even though you do, okay, yeah, I will understand and it will never change my love for you. Nothing you do or say will make me love you less. I have been told that before long, you and I will be permitted to see each other. And I hope that you are being treated as nice as all the officers have been to me. They have been swell. There is no reason why I should tell you that I love you. You know that. But believe me, darling, no matter what the future holds in store for each of us, I will love you until I die. Please take care of yourself, Ray. And who knows, maybe we will be together again sometime. It may be when we are both old and gray, but even then, you will still mean the same to me. Remember, my dear, I love you more than anybody or anything in this world. Yours now and forever, Martha. Wow. Uh, My first thought after reading this was, just for a second, I was like, ah, it's really sweet. But is it sweet? That's fucking crazy. This is someone she killed a toddler with. Someone she killed at least two women with. Someone who, at least according to some sources, pressured her to abandon her kids. Someone who abandoned his own four kids. Not romantic to keep romantically, you know, talking to someone like that. It's fucking sick and pathetic. Uh, Ray replied. I imagine when Ray got that letter, he was like, fuck. Oh my God. She's obsessed. But he replied beginning with, dearest Martha. Actually, he might have been just uh, is into her. I don't know. It's it's weird. He's so hot and cold with her. He says, Dearest Martha, I love you. I'm being treated very well with much respect. I miss you more than I ever dreamed I would. Although I'm feeling much better after I have confessed everything. Also, I've been prepared to give myself to God and hope you will also pray and you will feel much better too. I only hope that I get to see you again and be with you either here or in heaven. I love you. Think of me and God. Don't worry about me. He signs into Ray. Oh, that's great. No, he's got God now. Who fucking cares what he did? Ah, it's perfect. He has got it. It doesn't even matter. Um, and so weird. Again, I thought he couldn't wait to get rid of her. Both of these fuckers are so nuts. The attempt to communicate from behind bars leaked to the press who now had new juicy tidbits to share with the public. A press photograph published in numerous papers, including the Detroit Times on Tuesday, March 8th, 1949, shows Deputy Clarence Randall wearing his signature fedora, standing between Beck and Fernandez in the jail, holding their love notes, And with a just the facts, ma'am expression, he quizzes them about the exchange. So weird. It was a sensational photo. The lovers who had killed with letters now trying to send letters themselves on the eve of the day that would determine whether or not they would face the death penalty. Following the love note fiasco, Beck apparently tried to follow Fernandez's advice to pray and allowed a Baptist minister to sit with her. But he wanted more than just to save her soul. He wanted her guarantee that she would confess to all of her sins. Martha, though, not about to give away more than she already had, even to a man of the cloth. She dismissed the preacher and later complained that he wasn't even the right denomination. She said, he wanted me to sign a statement that I confessed all my sins to him and I had given my heart to God. I wouldn't do that, Beck told the press. I'm not a hypocrite. Besides, I'm a Methodist. That's good. That's good that she's a godly woman. Uh, now it's time for the extradition battle. Uh, Roger McMahon would hold uh, would make several comments excuse me, to the press that morning outlining his theories about what was to come next. 
He said that Beck and Fernandez had agreed to waive defense counsel, forego a legal battle, and plead guilty to first-degree murder in a Michigan courtroom. On the other hand, he said, if the killers were extradited to New York, prosecutors would have to find them guilty for the murder of Janet Fay to give them the electric chair. So that would be hard to do for both of them, given that Martha Beck had admitted to swinging the hammer herself that killed Janet. That meant that Fernandez, not quite as guilty, unless he could prove he ordered the murder. McMahon announced that he planned to ask the judge to give them each two life sentences to run successively. They would serve a minimum of 34 years each, and potentially longer. Uh, excuse me, but both the Michigan officials and the New York officials would have to make their cases before a judge, not the public. A six-car convoy brought the Lonely Hearts killers to the Capitol in Lansing, Michigan. 59 officers flanked the prisoners as they headed inside. Inside the Capitol, reporters and civilians crowded to watch the proceedings. All eyes focused on the prisoners who gave no outward sign of emotion during the entire session. They did not request counsel or speak while Philip Huntington outlined, as one reporter described it, their 60-day cross-county murder orgy. I think it was supposed to be country. 60-day cross-country murder orgy. Uh, Just a little uh, misspelling in the uh, source there. To Governor Williams' legal advisor, Clark J. Adams. Huntington from New York, who wanted extradition, gave an impassioned plea. They have admitted cold-blooded, sordid mercenary killings for the sake of obtaining money from two of the victims and trying to cover themselves with the slain of that little child. In this case, the, ex- uh, the exaction of the extreme penalty is in accord with the ends of justice. Huntington noted that should Governor William deny the extradition request, the state of Michigan could become known as a safe haven for felons fleeing capital punishment from other states. He said, the eyes of the criminal world are upon this state. Michigan should not be made the sanctuary of killers. He also noted that logic dictated that New York should be first since the Janet Faye murder came before the Michigan murders. After a brief moment of deliberation, Governor Williams decided to let them walk free. He gave him a kiss on the cheek and said, get out there, you fucking little lovebirds. Have a great life. No, he decided to grant New York's uh, extradition request. The Lonely Hearts killers would be headed to the Empire State to face trial. Only condition was that if they were found innocent, you know, in this case with Janet Faye, they'd be sent back to Michigan, tried for the other murders. On Thursday, March 10th, Governor William officially signs the extradition warrant. Same morning, Beck and Fernandez arraigned by Judge Dale Souter. They uh, said they both now wanted counsel as well as a formal hearing to challenge the extradition warrant, right? They'd acted for a while. They're like, they deserved whatever they're going to get. But now death's on the table and they changed their tune. Uh, Judge Souter postpones the hearing until Monday morning. He knows it will be important to do his research. If he sends them to New York without an airtight case and they're found guilty, it would be possible they could launch appeal after appeal based on his decision. Friday, March 11th, Martha Beck drops another bomb. Now she wants to amend her confession regarding Janet Faye. She had originally confessed to hammering the woman to death in a moment of passion with Fernandez finishing the act by twisting a scarf around her neck in a new confession. Uh, Fernandez brought the hammer to Faye's house earlier that day with the intent to use it. Huh. She wants to make sure he's going to get the death penalty too now. She said he put the hammer on the icebox and said to her, we may have trouble tonight and have to use this. She said that Fernandez manipulated her by essentially telling her that if she loved him, she would kill Janet. With the death penalty on the table, Martha suddenly cares a lot more uh, about all this. Uh, this was not a good thing for Fernandez. He might have evaded the electric chair or been found not guilty, you know, previously. But now there's this uh, new evidence. Now Beck's saying that he's part of it. He's, he helped plan it. Fernandez stuck with his original statement. Monday, March 13th, Beck and Fernandez apply for a writ of habeas corpus through their court-appointed attorney. The killer's lawyer, Adrian Vespor, looked like he hadn't slept in days. In between planning to make his case, he'd been receiving a barrage of phone calls threatening him for defending baby killers. In the end, Judge Souter denies the request. That is kind of crazy back then when it was easier to get people's fucking numbers. 
they just look him up with the phone book <laughs> just to call this guy all day and night. Uh, the Lonely Hearts Killers, you know, go to New York as planned on Tuesday, March 14th. They go out, get on a flight and route to LaGuardia, uh, leaving Grand Rapids. As soon as they land, they begin saying to anyone who will listen, like members of the press awaiting their arrival, that the Michigan court system was bogus, that McMahon had made them a fake promise. It was a dirty trick. They were taken to police headquarters in uh, Mineola, New York, where they were booked. Martha would land in the House of Corrections for Women. And apparently she liked the facilities better in Michigan because on May 24, she wrote a letter to the women's supervisor back at the Kent County Jail. Mrs. Mildred Bellows, matron, Kent County Jail, Grand Rapids, Michigan. My dear Mrs. Bellows. So weird that she wrote this. At long last, I've been transferred to where I'm allowed to write a letter to the outside world. Ever since I told you goodbye, March 15th, I've been thinking of you and wanting to let you hear from me. Words cannot express my appreciation for everything you did for me. I will never forget it. If it hadn't been for you and your untiring efforts, I am sure I would have had many a miserable hour. Please tell Mrs. Van Dyke that I will never forget how she too helped me find what I have been seeking for a period of years. Peace. My future is in God's hands, and I am not afraid. Please extend my greetings to Sheriff Blacklock, Mr. Pigorsh, Captains Randall and Tui. Also to the girls. I have often wondered about Babe. How did she make out, good or bad? Also Dorothy J. Did she make a return visit? I would enjoy hearing from you. And also Mrs. Van. Closing with love. Yours, Martha Beck. <laughs> what fucking personality disorder or attachment disorder or some other diagnosable mental affliction did Martha have? Her behavior is just so fucking socially off. She acts like the people this other jail were like good old buddies of hers. Just longtime friends or like coworkers or something. I wonder how many of those people that she missed were just thoroughly disgusted by her. Also writing this letter will come back to haunt her in her trial. And we're finally getting to that trial. In an interesting twist, a lawyer named Herbert H. Rosenberg would end up defending both of them. Beck somehow paid for his services, but the state footed the bill for Fernandez since he claimed to be broke. So they didn't try to get the same person, ended up with the same person. Uh, the trial would take place in the Bronx. Monday, June 27th, the people of the state of New York versus Raymond Martinez Fernandez and Martha Jewel Beck began. Both lawyers, prosecutor Edward Robinson Jr., defense attorney Herbert H. Uh, e. Excuse me, Herbert E. Rosenberg outlined their cases in the opening statements. In his opening, Robinson provided the backstory of the crimes before describing in graphic detail the slain, a murder that had come after years of manipulating women purely for profit. Robinson relied heavily on Martha Beck's supplementary statement on March 11th when he described Faye's murder. He described how they squeezed Janet's body into a trunk, dumped it in an apartment building basement before they put her in the ground under a layer of concrete. Herbert's uh, Rosenberg's opening in comparison consumed far less time but would be just as impassioned. He said his clients were victims of a corrupt system that was hell-bent on the death penalty. Give me a fucking break. Victims my ass. He said he would prove that Fernandez wasn't even present at the time of the murder and knew nothing about it, while Martha Beck was legally insane and therefore not responsible. But she wasn't legally insane. Legally insane. Uh, if there were any crime committed here and the prosecution must first prove that there was a crime, then it was manslaughter. I intend to show that there was no premeditation and no, no dangerous weapon was used in the assault. Then Rosenberg pointed at James N. Gehrig, the Nassau County District Attorney, seated next to ADA Edward Robinson. I will also show that Mr. Gehrig is an electric chair-minded conviction-happy district attorney and that the district attorney's office of Nassau has engineered this whole trial. It's conspiracy, everybody. Everyone's out to get these poor two lovers. They just had a fucking bad day and maybe kind of killed somebody and hid the body in a basement and now they're supposed to fry? What, what kind of world is this? Uh, Robinson immediately objected. Judge, Judge uh, Percora sustained it. That only meant that Rosenberg could now target another group, Michigan law enforcement officers. He said his clients were victims of deceit and trickery. The state of New York now pr tried to prove its case. 
by bringing in evidence from Janet Faye's possessions and items recovered from Delaphine Downing's house to show a pattern of behavior wherein Beck and Fernandez targeted women, stole their money, and killed them. Herbert Rosenberg would do his best to counter these claims, but he did have a big roadblock in his way. The killers recorded confessions. To get rid of that roadblock, Rosenberg tried to argue that the confessions were coerced and thus inadmissible, which meant he needed to discredit the detectives. The proceedings crawled on as Rosenberg tried to throw everything he could to destroy the prosecution's case. As at the same time, a heat wave engulfed the city and turned the Bronx Supreme Court into a sauna. One of his attempts included calling Roger McMahon uh, to the stand, whom he labeled a hostile witness. Judge didn't agree. McMahon spent most of June 30th on the hot seat, literally a very hot seat in the Bronx, uh, explaining how he managed to get the confessions about Janet Faye's murder. He said he had promised to keep the confessions in a safe and not tell anyone about them, but didn't promise not to make copies of the confessions and send the copies to New York. It's a pretty funny loophole. Uh, McMahon would be ordered by the judge to produce the signed confessions. The originals, the trial would be suspended until July 5th to give him time to get those from Michigan. Rosenberg had a plan for how to use the confessions. He wanted them to bolster his insanity defense now. July 5th, Rosenberg would continue his questioning of McMahon. McMahon denied the killers were ever beaten or abused at the hands of Michigan law enforcement. There was a lot of debate about why or why not certain copies of the confession were signed and who was present when the confessions were made and why. Rosenberg said he wanted to know why Martha's court-appointed lawyer wasn't at her second confession on March 11th, and unknowingly, by bringing that up, he fucked up. He got himself and his clients in hot water. Under examination by Edward Robinson, McMahon would say that her lawyer wasn't there because he had personally told Martha in front of witnesses not to make further statements. If she did, she was practically convicting herself of first-degree murder in New York, but she made the statements anyway. Now the jury could hear every word of the confession, made of her own free will and against advice of legal counsel. Also, in addition to the confessions, there was physical evidence, right? The blood-streaked hammer, a big part of that evidence found in Fernandez's car. Uh, One of the last people to take the stand, called by Rosenberg, would be Fernandez himself. He testified he didn't have any food or water during his marathon confession on March 1st. He said in his jail cell, he was nipped by rats and mice, and he resorted to drinking toilet water. He's a victim. Most of all, he said he was exhausted and had no idea what he was saying when he confessed. He said he made all of his statements out of a desire to protect Martha Beck, not because they were the truth. But in these statements, he said he didn't care for Clingy Beck. He's looking more and more like a liar the more he talks. Just some dude trying to save his ass uh, who will say anything. Things heat up further when Robinson begins his cross-examination of Fernandez July 12th. Answering Robinson's ruthless questions, Fernandez admits that he had a wife and four kids in Spain. He admitted that he signed Jane Thompson's name to several papers after her death. He admitted to evicting Pearl, her mom, from her own house. Spectators then enjoyed a juicy scene when Robinson made a faux pas by asking if Mrs. Fernandez, meaning Jane Wilson Thompson, was dead or alive when Fernandez forged the will. Martha Beck didn't care for that, couldn't stand the implication, and uh, she blurted out, Mrs. Fernandez is not dead, Mr. Robinson, seeming to feel that, you know, that she was the uh, real Mrs. Fernandez. Uh, Robinson proceeded getting Fernandez to admit that he had met Martha through an advertisement, and the two of them proceeded to Fairfax, Virginia where Fernandez married Esther Henney bigamously. On their marriage application, Fernandez indicated that he had never uh, before wed, which was an outright lie. The jury beginning to see how many lies Fernandez, you know, had told now, how many lives he had lived. You know, maybe not murder, but how many shady situations he connected himself to by putting his name on, you know, various uh, marriage applications and so forth, such as his marriage to Myrtle Young. And crazily, Fernandez would even admit straight up to shooting and killing Delphine Downing. By the time Raymond Fernandez finished his cross-examination, he had admitted to being a, a bigamist, to forging, to stealing, and to murdering. Not the best look. 
Rosenberg tried one feeble uh, attempt to counter this, asking Fernandez why he married Esther Henney. Fernandez said that it was to protect Martha Beck. Martha had attempted suicide twice, he said, but somehow swore that if Fernandez was happily married, she would stop doing that and return to her life in Florida. Uh, The marriage to Esther then failed. Fernandez continued because she complained. I ignored her sexually. He just loved Martha too much. He was a good romantic guy, a, a, a sweetheart. The new confessions would be accepted into evidence July 12th, becoming People's Exhibits number 55 and 57. Robinson read both statements in their entirety. As he described the attack on Janet Faye, Julia Seabrook, Martha's mom, sobbed in the courtroom. During the last day of the prosecution's case, July 15th, Edward Robinson introduced into evidence the bloodstained trunk used to transport Janet from the murder scene to Queens. Evidence showed that Fernandez had tried to cover the bloodstained trunk lining with a coat of lacquer and pink wallpaper, showing again his guilt. Fernandez, who largely remained unmoved by the large exhibit, became visibly agitated when Robinson displayed a graphic picture of Faye's body doubled over in her grave. Even Martha, who had been smiling and giggling at most of the trial, again, she's fucking nuts, sat with her hands folded in her lap now, staring glumly at the ground. One more object would be entered into evidence, a smaller olive-colored trunk now. The killers had attempted to stuff Janet's body into this trunk, but it was too small. Attempts to shove her body inside had left blood spatters on the lining. As one of his final witnesses, Robin called Fred J. Letter, or I'm excuse me, Fred J. Jetter. Uh, Fred J. Jetter, <laughs> okay? Uh, document expert for the New York State Police Bureau of Criminal Investigation. On the stand, J. Jetter, Freddie J. Jetter, uh, examined several letters, letters that were apparently authored by Janet Faye, which had her signature, but were found among Fernandez's papers in the Downing Home. One letter dated January 11th, the week after Janet's murder, and addressed to her stepdaughter, contained a message clearly intended to make Janet's daughter think her mom was still alive. I am sure my prayers have been answered by sending this wonderful man to me. Jetter testified that the author of the letter used Fernandez's typewriter to type the letter. And Janet Faye also didn't know how to type. Additionally, under ultraviolet light, you could faintly make out the word surprise next to Janet's signature. There were three other letters supposedly written by Janet Faye that actually matched Martha's handwriting. Handwriting that they got from the letter that Martha had tried to send to the Kent County Jail supervisor. That letter had been legally confiscated. So both were clearly in on it. Both had participated. Both tried to cover it up. Game, set, match. Rosenberg moved for a direct dismissal of the case, a mistrial, an immediate acquittal. All three were denied. These are just fucking Hail Marys he's throwing. Now Rosenberg's only tactic is to convince the jury that Fernandez hadn't been present for the Faye murder and Martha Beck was insane. He would once again call Fernandez to the stand, who denied knowing anything about Janet Faye's murder until it was too late. Also provided a new reason for the killing. They're getting fucking desperate. Now they talk about how the night before the murder, uh, Fernandez says that he and Janet Faye had made love in Faye's one-room apartment while Martha stewed on a bed across the room. Creepy. Next night, the three stayed in the Valley Steam apartment that Fernandez had rented. While Faye showered, Beck asked Fernandez to make love to her. When he turned her down, he said she went to bed upset. She and Faye then shared this bed in the bedroom while Fernandez slept on the couch. Then he said Faye came to him in the middle of the night in an amorous mood. When he told her to go back to bed, she started sobbing and Fernandez asked Beck to keep her quiet. When he returned from the bathroom, Beck had killed Faye. That was not what Fernandez had meant by keep her quiet. He then tied a scarf around her neck to staunch the blood flow to try and save her, not to strangle her. This is pathetic. Prosecution would quickly point out that her injuries were on her fucking head, not her neck. So nice try, dipshit. Then Fernandez gives an account of his affairs that is so salacious and uh, that several women in the gallery leave or use their hands to shield their faces. Oh my! Oh, he's talking about sex. Oh, oh, I could faint. Uh, he talked about his relationship with Martha Beck. Said he was unhappy with Martha sexually. She failed to climax during intercourse and it bothered him. 
This is what is making people like literally leave the courtroom. Like I love how fucked up people are where they can come to this courtroom they have to, to hear grisly details of a murder. And then they hear about a female orgasm. They're like, oh, dear. Uh, someone help me outside. Uh, Fernandez explained, yeah, he, he's uh, unhappy with Martha sexually. Failed to climax during intercourse. It bothers him. Uh, he even sent her to a doctor to, to help her learn how to come. And despite that, though, he said he loved her. The fuck is happening in this confusing relationship? Martha Beck would be called to the stand on July 5th, 1949, Monday morning. Uh, one Long Island Star Journal reporter described Martha's grand entrance onto the stage saying, a faint smile played across her roly-poly face. Jesus Christ. As she raised her right hand and took the oath. Man, reporters back in the 40s love to fucking fat shame people. My God, or at least women. It was the 28th day of the trial now. Rosenberg's plan was to prove that she was mentally unbalanced, roaming across the country, watching her lover meet new, new women had unhinged her. Martha opened her testimony by loudly declaring, I can come. Oh, how I can come. I could drown everyone in this courtroom if the dick is right. I just can't come with that cervix poking little pencil dick. Who could? Not me. Not Janet. Not all the other women he's killed. Uh, she didn't say that. Uh, she talked about how she was a, a longtime victim of sexual abuse, beginning in her early adolescence when her older brother molested her twice. Afterwards, her mom blamed her, eventually closed down young Martha's social life. To add insult to injury, Martha said her mom only allowed her to go to her senior prom if she was ch chaperoned by the same brother who molested her. And then he wouldn't let anyone dance with her. Then Beck described an incident that, if true, highly convenient for her insanity defense. She said that just after graduating from nursing school, she fell in the shower and really hit her head pretty bad. Uh, she testified while in the hospital, I fell out of bed while trying to strike one of the nurses. They told me I was not in my right mind, that I was delirious. I picture her really selling that, like looking around, delirious. AKA insane. Uh, she said she had just lost another job when a physician tried to, or the, she then lost another job when a doctor tried to assault her and she slapped him. Excuse me. Meanwhile, she said her mother forcibly moved in with her and then forced her to relinquish her entire salary to her. I mean, I guess this stuff is possible. I don't know how her mom forced this grown woman to do this. Uh, her mom is the only person that's shown up in the courtroom, by the way. I mean, not that that means she couldn't have done what she's saying here, but again, I think Martha is full of shit. Martha described the entire process of meeting Ray, how he said that he'd marry her, then he broke up with her, then she attempted suicide, then he called her up, she moved to New York, abandoned her kids to the Salvation Army, and attempted suicide again. In tears, she confessed, I've never seen them since. Yeah, because of fucking what you did. Something you didn't have to do. I hate it when people just will not take any accountability for horrible choices. And instead, try and flip it around and make themselves the victim of their own choices somehow. That's some seriously gross shit. So manipulative, right? You abandon your kids. Then later, you try to get people to feel sorry for you because you abandoned your kids. Uh, she said that the reason she went on with the Lonely Heart scam so long is that Fernandez told her he, he just needed enough money to divorce his wife in Spain. Okay, uh, that, that's new. Among other uh, spicy tidbits Beck offered, she described a strip poker game between herself and Esther Henney. At the time, Mrs. Fernandez, the winner would have the right to bed Fernandez, she said. And Beck uh, said she won. Because of winning the game, she testified, I was permitted by Mrs. Henny due to the fact that she was a loser to have sexual relations with Mr. Fernandez. Did this happen? This is so fucking weird. Lindsay might literally murder me if I even asked for that. Hey, baby. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking trying something new. Hey, let's invite one of your single friends over tonight. 
and maybe play, uh, I don't know, Monopoly, strip poker, maybe, maybe strip poker. And check this out. Oh, this would be the best part. Whoever wins gets to fuck this guy <laughs> while the loser watches. I mean, what's not fun about um, July 27th, 1949. Uh, Beck gives new testimony about the night of Janet Faye's murder. Story keeps changing. Now Beck explains that she and Janet Faye slept on the double bed in the apartment's lone bedroom while Fernandez slept on the couch. That part's the same. Sometime between 3.30 a.m. and 4 a.m., Beck testified Fernandez came to her in the bedroom, complained about Faye's behavior. Faye had come over to the couch and he didn't like what she was up to. That part's the same. He said that he would go into the bathroom while Beck went to the couch and brought Faye back to bed. Beck now found Faye, this is a new part, new and spread eagle on the couch, nude and spread eagle on the couch. The sight of Faye's legs splayed, shocked her to her core. Faye looked alarmed too. She hadn't been expecting Martha and Martha now flew into a jealous rage. All right, that just fits the insanity thing they're going for. Next thing she knew, Raymond had his hand on her shoulder and was shaking her and Janet Faye was dead on the floor. And somehow she had a bloody hammer in hand. Who handed me this bloody hammer? What's happening? I'm crazy. Uh, by the close of the trial, both Beck and Fernandez testified that despite the medical examiner's conclusion that Faye died from asphyxiation, uh, she had died directly from Beck's hammer blows. Their bullshit testimony now didn't match the Michigan confessions or the medical testimony. They're fucked. Martha would say she was lying when she gave her statement in Michigan under duress by authorities there. Prosecutor Edward Robinson would quickly prove that she was a habitual liar that she lied about being F.J. Carmen's wife, that she lied about the conditions at the Kent County Jail being poor. She lied about having this fucking uh, uh, veteran husband that got her pregnant who died in the war. Uh, she lied about statements that she made uh, as far as what she did to Janet to save her life, uh, that those would actually go against her training as a nurse, just a bunch of stuff. And he would examine Beck's neighbors in Pensacola, all of whom would say that her suicide attempts were, quote, a joke. A cry for attention, not evidence of mental illness. I fucking knew it. And I formed my previous opinions before I heard that part. So who would the jury believe? As the trial came to an end, Rosenberg tried a last ditch insanity plea for Fernandez, which was just as quickly withdrawn as the one he had tried for uh, Beck. He's just grasping at anything. And he even had at the very final, like in the final minutes, just because why not? He had Rooster Bogle deliver part of his closing argument. Hey, jury, it's me, Rooster Bogle. Don't mind that guy on the keyboard. Yeah, he even follows me into courtrooms to play that music. I, I'm kind of a lawyer. Sometimes people confess to killing people. But what they really meant to say was, sorry about that, accidents happen. Have you ever done something that was an accident? Do you think that you should be killed for that? Neither should Sugar Ray and what the heck Beck. Accidents happen. Even ones done on purpose. And another thing, how fun would it be to get away with murder? Come on, admit it. Wouldn't you want to get away with murder? If you accidentally on purpose murder someone, so let them off. Just let them off. You know they're guilty. I know they're guilty. But that don't mean they need to be cock-a-doodle-doomed. And if you need a lawyer when you're guilty, look up the rooster and call 1-800-GUILTY with two wives. Uh, sorry, rooster didn't help either, of course. Uh, rooster's from a few episodes ago. If, if you just hopped in this pond for the first time and are thoroughly confused, by the way. I just love thinking about rooster. Uh, after rooster never did any of that, both lawyers gave closing statements. They finished giving them. Robinson spoke last. He made clear his intentions to send both criminals to Sing Sing to fucking fry in the chair. August 17th, 1949, Judge Picor instructs the jury to make their decision. They go into the room at 7.56 p.m. Excuse me, after a 13-hour deliberation, they return to announce their verdict. There would be no sentencing. Finding them guilty of first-degree murder would send them both to the chair. After 43 days, just past 8 in the morning, Fred D. Yobbs, the foreman, would deliver the news. Martha Beck, guilty of murder in first degree. Raymond Fernandez, also guilty of murder in the first degree. It was best case scenario for the prosecution. 
They filed out of the courtroom. Not only did Martha not seem that upset, she turned and waved to Raymond like everything was fine as she's leaving. She is so fucking weird. He did not wave back. Beck and Fernandez arrived at the death house on Sing Sing on August 22nd, 1949. Their execution date was set for almost exactly a year later, August 28th, 1950. Weeks before their dual execution, early August 1950, two interesting events occur. Fernandez makes a legal effort that leads to a stay in execution, and he and Beck have a kind of divorce. What happened was, a year after they arrive in the death house, Fernandez enters a petition of habeas corpus in federal court, said he was involved in a, quote, sadistic death house triangle. According to Fernandez, an unarmed guard had become enamored with Martha Beck. He wooed her through her cell bars, making suggestive comments loud enough for Fernandez to hear from his cell. Uh, The guard, according to Fernandez, liked to kiss and tell by boasting about his amorous, albeit non-physical relationship with Beck. Fernandez expressed his angst in a letter to his new lawyer, William Richter. He would rather waive the rest of his appeals and go to the chair than listen to the lewd courtship for another day. The plan was, by acting as though he was willing to go to the chair, it was to make him appear again insane. Uh, Beck apparently didn't like these allegations in a letter to her mom dated Sunday, September 24th, 1950. She called Fernandez a skunk, writing, I hope the prison officials realize he is putting on an act to be declared insane so as to beat the chair. He hasn't got the guts to commit suicide. Nor could he walk to the chair. He'd be dragged all the way, fighting and screaming. Oh, yes, he's brave when it comes to talk and hurting others. He can kill without batting an eyelash. But to hurt himself, he'd never do it. It takes a man to kill himself. <laughs> That's how she ends that. It takes a man to kill himself. She is so strange. Uh, Herbert E. Rosenberg, Raymond and Martha's lawyer, is in on this last-ditch insanity attempt and says there's enough evidence to warrant a full investigation of the death house triangle. Acting warden, uh, Deno does investigate, finds that Fernandez has just heard Beck laughing with the warden uh, who was switching shift, and that was that's it. And that's what made Fernandez become enraged. Uh, the press loves this story. Dozens of national papers report on it, and 25 million Americans tune in to hear about it when Walter Winchell discusses it on his 9 p.m. radio show. Fernandez's efforts uh, would not work. Not well. He would delay his death, but only by a few months. The Supreme Court denied his attempt at being declared insane. And the New York Court State of Appeals sets a new execution date. Lonely Hearts killers would now die the week of March 5th, 1951. Warden Denno and his 24 available spot, uh, has 24 available spots to witness the execution. Uh, Kent County Sheriff's Office requests four of these spots. None of Delaphine's relatives applied. Her mom, Bertha Price, did send a scathing four-page letter to Denno requesting that he read it to the killers. And he did. The letter included what Bertha wished she could do to Martha put you in a large tank of water and hold you down and down until you died. Yeah, that's fair. On the eve of her execution, March 7th, March, Martha puts in a last request that her final hours be spent in quiet meditation, not to be spoiled by harassment from the two prison matrons. And Denmo or Denno uh, denies that request. Ah, uh, yeah, good. She deserve peace. She sure as fuck didn't give little Raynell peace when she drowned her. So yeah, fuck her. March 8, uh, 1951, the day the Lonely Hearts killers will both finally face the electric chair they've been trying to avoid for two years. It appears that despite their occasional animosity and the fact that they couldn't communicate, they still wanted to telegraph their love for each other and did in twin statements submitted through Rosenberg. Martha would say, My story is a love story, but only those tortured by love can know what I mean. I was pictured as a fat, unfeeling woman, but if that was a crime, how many of my sex would be guilty? I am not unfeeling, stupid, or moronic. The prison and the death house have only strengthened my feelings for Raymond. And in the history of the world, how many crimes can be attributed to love? My last words and my last thoughts are, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. Oh boy. 
Uh, your sin's a wee bit bigger than most of ours, Martha. Of course you would play the victim until the bitter end. Almost all these killers do. Fernandez uh, keeps his simple. He says, I'm going to die. As you know, that's something I've been prepared for since 1949. I'm going to die like a man. The public wants to know if I love Martha. He continued, of course I do. I want to shout it out. What the hell does the world know about love? <laughs> These fucking dramatic pieces. The best news I've had is that Martha still loves me. That makes me want to burst with joy. Oh, he's a wonderful guy. What a great guy. Uh, they ate their last meals around 5 p.m., but not together. Beck had southern fried chicken with a side of french fries and a dinner salad topped with tomatoes. Got to get a healthy salad in there. Fernandez ate an onion omelet, sliced tomatoes, and almond ice cream for dessert. He didn't give a fuck about salad. His final meal. Then at 6 p.m., one of the matrons shaved a bald patch on the top of Beck's head for placement of an electrode. An electrode. And soon the witnesses would arrive, 32 guests, 30 reporters, and two enforcement officers attend the executions that night. The enforcement officers are Clarence Randall and James Tuey from Michigan. They sat in the front row. Raymond Fernandez walked into the death chamber at 11, 12 uh, p.m. He would make a theatrical gesture that led to a lot of speculation in the next morning's papers. As he sat down in the chair, he pulled up his pant legs to reporters in the audience. It read as though Fernandez was mocking the solemn occasion by attempting to maintain a crisp crease in his trousers. All right, feel like they're kind of reading into shit there, but uh, the guards fastened the leather straps, electric leads, and the hood. Uh, the well-rehearsed process took less than three minutes. And then, no one expected this, Martha is walked in. Now, this is going to be the craziest electric chair situation you have ever heard about. There was a problem with the transformer near the prison that week. And there was not enough juice to perform two separate electrocutions that day. But also, legally, they could not delay either of the executions now that the date had been set. So what did they do? Well, they improvised. Martha agreed to be electrocuted simultaneously with Raymond, who also agreed. After Ray was fully strapped in, Martha was walked in and was led to sit down on his lap because he only had one chair. Long straps secured her legs and arms over his to the chair. Then another strap strapped their fucking heads together after her head was also slipped inside of a hood. Then before the current is surged into the room, the crowd gasps when these two skunks, these stinkers, start dry humping. <laughs> Whoa! Martha grinding her ass with all her might into Raymond's thrusting crotch, making things even more obscene. These two skunks moaned loudly with all this going on. And then Rooster Bogle somehow shows up behind him out of fucking nowhere and yells out, these two are cock-a-doodle-doomed as a bazillion volts suddenly surge through their bodies. So much electricity, it literally blows their fucking heads up. Blood goes everywhere. Then credits start to roll in a weird, who's watching this fever dream movie ending I just wrote. No, of course Martha did not sit on Raymond's lap in the electric chair. <laughs> but I, I don't know why that visual though. I, I, wish, I wish that was the real story. Uh, Ray was lit up first. His body jumped slightly when the first shock of electricity surged through the electrodes into his body. Three shorter bursts followed and he was dead at 11.16 p.m. Beck, flanked by two matrons, now walks into the death chamber at just five minutes, uh, just five minutes later at 11.21 p.m. And that's true. And that is pretty weird for me uh, to hear about them, you know, her coming in so quickly after him because she had to have just smelled the man <laughs> that she loved right before she died, right? Like smelled his cooked body. Reverend quietly recited a prayer while the attendants fastened the straps. The next day, some members of the press who attended uh, could not resist the opportunity for one final jab at her weight. Probably sounds like I'm making the weight stuff up. Uh, I am not. Uh, Daily News correspondents Martin Kibble and James Desmond the following morning wrote, The electric chair was a tight fit. Martha had to wriggle slightly to get her more than 200 pounds between the fatal arms. Why are they doing this? Beck's eyes drifted around the room before her face was covered. She glanced up as the death mask was lowered and then her face disappeared. Her body strained and jerked as the first shock hit 
Uh, at the second shock, her body jerked forward. Two more shocks, and she was dead. The morning after, her mom would claim that the her mom would claim the body and have it sent to Pensacola for burial. Raymond had signed over his eyes to the Eye Bank for sight restoration, and they were taken. His sister claimed his body from the prison morgue. And now let's get out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. The Lonely Hearts Killers. What a couple of weirdos. Uh, Raymond, it does seem that a massive head wound right on a ship really did scramble his brain. Got arrested for the first time that we know about shortly after that head wound. Left his family and started scamming not long after all uh, after the head wound. Had his skull fractured at the end of 1945. By late 1947, less than two years after he recovered, he likely killed one of the women he scammed, Jane Wilson Thompson. Still less than two years from his head wound, he met up with the very emotionally unstable Martha Beck after meeting her through some Lonely Hearts Club uh, correspondence. And then they were off and scamming in 1948 and likely had killed a woman by that August. And definitely killed Janet Faye in January of 1949. Before all of this, by all accounts, Raymond was a hardworking veteran, father of uh, four, living in Spain, uh, seemed to live an honorable life for years, you know, building a family. What if one bad blow to the head really did turn him from a good dude into a heartless scammer and a murderer? That is a scary thought that any of us could be one blow to the head away from being a contributing and even honorable member of society and then become someone willing to have an innocent toddler uh, drown just to increase the odds that we wouldn't be caught for killing their widowed mother that we had been scamming. And Martha Beck, again, what undiagnosed mental illness did she have? Is there a mental illness that makes you really pathetic and so desperate that you'll help murder people just so that the man you love, the man who is constantly fucking other women he is scamming that you know about, maybe even in front of you, just so that man won't leave you? I mean, pathetic is the word that keeps popping up in my head when I think about her. Oh, and that's all I got on these skunks. And now let's head to our takeaways, our fifth takeaway, the funniest one I can remember, maybe, maybe just ever. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Lonely Hearts killers were Raymond Fernandez and Martha Beck, who for sure killed three people together, Janet Faye, Delaphine Downing, and little Raynell Downing. Probably killed at least one other person, Myrtle Young, and highly likely that Raymond at least murdered Jane, uh, one other person, Jane Thompson, in Spain in 1947, bringing their combined death total to probably at least five people. Investigators couldn't find any other names on Raymond's list that match murders, but it is possible that the pair committed many more murders. Some of the time, we're convinced they killed up to 17 victims. Number two, Lonely Hearts Clubs proliferated across America in the beginning of the 20th century. An abundance of scams and also some other murders I didn't touch on uh, were committed via these Lonely Hearts Clubs, but the Lonely Hearts killers remain the most infamous criminals connected to this old dating service. Number three, sex, sex, and more sex. In many ways, this has become the crime of the 1940s because of how much sex it featured. In an America that was just returning to its horned-up state post-war, and for many people who delighted in sexual crime fiction that featured busty pinup models, the case of the Lonely Hearts Killers became famous for how much it had to do with sex. Martha alleged that she found Janet Faye naked on a couch waiting for Raymond, which led to Faye's murder. Raymond would claim that his marriage with Esther Henney didn't get off the ground because she complained I ignored her sexually. He would also say that Martha couldn't climax, which led to relationship troubles. All that doesn't read very scandalous to me today. Lucifina said she finds it all pretty fucking boring. But back in the 40s, that was some seriously juicy shit. And the public ate it up. Number four, the murder case of Janet Faye against Raymond and Martha Beck back in New York might have been a lot harder to prove 
if it wasn't for Michigan's Kent County prosecutor, Roger O. McMahon's promise. Had Ray and Martha thought they could be tried in New York and sentenced to death for Janet's murder, they may have never confessed to killing her. And number five, new info. Oh, boy. Uh, Marital advertisements and Lonely Hearts Clubs were not just a thing in the U.S. long before the internet. They also existed in Madarasha, at least as far back as 1906. The most popular marriage publication in Tsarist Russia was cleverly called, this is so Russian, Marriage Newspaper, uh, Braknaya Gazeta. Uh, published between 1906 and 1917 in huge numbers. To ensure privacy for their clients, the editorial office was very discreet. They sent the newspapers in envelopes, kept names, addresses of subscribers private. Bylines, pretty funny. <laughs> Here are some of the men's. One man wrote, I have nothing but the kind soul decency and an earldom. Young, 30, secondary education, hardworking, want to marry wealthy lady and appreciate her for her support. Won't respond to anonymous replies. Here's another guy. If I were rich, I would marry only poor girl, but I am poor. Intelligent with a degree. Agronomist Polish, 35. Offer myself for a husband only to a rich girl. No less than 100,000 rubles capital. If you agree, you'll never regret choice. I don't answer to anonymous replies. And here's a guy willing to marry a rich woman, any rich woman of any age. He writes, young, very handsome, intelligent Georgian, teacher, tall, healthy, strong, musician, specializing in violin, wants to marry a rich lady who would give him opportunity to finish musical education. Age doesn't matter. (laughs) I love it. Please, I fuck any pussy if it let me learn violin better. I don't care. I put dick in any hole. Please, let me keep learning scales. Next guy wants a virgin with no family. A widower, 42, wants to marry a young woman without a past. Educated, with knowledge of music and a fine voice, a mother-in-law is undesirable. <laughs> Maybe that guy wants a sex life. Uh, and there's a couple women's. Uh, this first woman sounds like a lot. Beautiful, with mermaid eyes, all woven from nerves and originality, is calling an intelligent and very rich mister who is capable of a strong, bright feeling to a feast of life, goal, marriage. She just wants some fucking rich guy who's poetic, you know? Uh, this next young woman who wants, uh, wants a rich guy too, an old, <laughs> an old rich guy with a limp dick. She writes, educated young lady, 20, is looking for a millionaire husband, has to be senior to prevent adultery. <laughs> and finally, this next lady is already rich. She just wants some dick, some big dick. <laughs> These are real, apparently. A very interesting lady, blonde with dark eyes, with capital, wants to get married. only." To a man who has at least one feature, a well-endowed one. Well, hell is Safina. And finally, my favorite one. <laughs> this poor guy. I don't know if they used to write joke uh, entries back then. If this is real, he probably, he probably didn't get too many replies <laughs> for this one. It's very simple. I am poor and ugly. I'm looking for the exact opposite. Woman, respond. Kind of love stories from Russia. <laughs> Overall, my favorite country to learn about. It fucking kills me. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Uh, the Lonely Hearts Killers have been sucked. Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making time suck. Thank you to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thank you to the Suck Ranger, Tyler C., for producing and directing today, and to the Art Warlock for helping with production. Thanks to Bitelixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app, the Art Warlock, Logan Keith again, creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com and helping run socials with the Suck Ranger. 
and a team led by our social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans again for the initial research. Extra thanks for finding me these uh, old Russian Marijets. God, it made me so happy. And thanks to the all seeing eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad, making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone over on the Time Suck subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. Next week on Time Suck, we go Cult, Cult, Cult. Once again, did a deep dive and we got an obscure but a great one. When you hear the words wisdom, knowledge, faith, and love, what do you think of? Maybe some generic values taught at an elementary school. Perhaps a wall hanging in someone's suburban house like, you know, live, laugh, love. Uh, What I'm betting you don't think of is a little-known cult that roamed the hills outside of Los Angeles for almost a decade in the middle of the 20th century. But that's exactly what the Fountain of the World, a.k.a. WKFL Fountain of the World, a.k.a. The Fountain, was. In many ways, the cult will be similar to ones we've talked about here before. Like in many cults, there was a central figure, the self-named Krishna Venta, a strange man with long hair and a beard who dreamed up the idea uh, to be a, you know, have a cult in between stints in prison for petty theft and vagrancy. His message began with love, and once his followers gave him all their power, i.e. let him rename them with biblical names, make all their decisions from what they wore to who they married, he began to abuse that power, both financially and in other ways I bet you can imagine. But the fountain also unlike any cult we've ever covered before. Krishnaventa told his followers an insane backstory having to do with spaceships coming down from heaven to Tibet, how he was actually Jesus, actually pretty much every single prophet, and oh yeah, there was going to be a coming race war, and the Russians were going to enslave all of humanity. So it's going to be fun. <laughs> and this group would uh, come to a very dramatic end. Find out exactly what that was and a whole bunch of other insane shit next week on Time Suck. Right now, heading on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Let's start with a, a selfless shout out from a finally drank the Kool-Aid sucker, Eric Brooks, who writes, Dan, first of all, you are the man. I have to be honest. When my girlfriend first recommended the show to me, I couldn't get hooked. How fucking dare you? No. Uh, however, as, as soon as I heard some of the history sucks, I was hooked for life. Okay, cool. Uh, forever grateful for you for keeping the content flowing. Also grateful to my girlfriend, Emily, and her brother, John, for turning me in on to Time Suck. John is a mega fan, a great guy all around. He's listens to, uh, listened to you religiously since 2018. Is loving the sucks as he finishes up his master's degree in accounting from New Mexico State University and studies for his certified public accountant. CPA exams. It would mean the world to him if you could possibly give him a shout out as motivation to get through the last push of school and study. He has worked so hard to get through this program and we could not be more proud of him. Thanks again for all you do. Keeping the three of us sucked in, Eric. Well, thank you, Eric. Uh, Grateful you've stuck around. And John, thanks for continuing to listen. And now I think you should drop out. There's no future in accounting. The robots will soon enslave us and currency will be meaningless. Only guns, clean water, ammo, jerky uh fucking berries and stuff are gonna matter maybe gold no kidding of course uh you have a great career full of consistent employment ahead of you doing shit that makes lives easier and businesses run smoother so go get it john and hail nimrod next a cummins law victim and just a sweet story from a sweet man sack chef sam who writes dear proprietor of peanut butter butter dan been listening to time section 2018 2019 can't quite remember started with richard ramirez I was a fan of your stand-up before discovering the pod and just went from there. My family owns a restaurant at Lake Arrowhead, California, Stone Creek Bistro. We've been open since 2013. I'm the chef. I do the bulk of the prep in the morning, which leaves me plenty of time to listen to podcasts. In late February this year, our community was rocked with the worst snowstorm in 50 plus years. Yeah. I read a lot about that. Uh, nine feet of snow. This is unheard of. Anyway, we were closed for about a month because of this snow removal, etc. 
It's been trying, especially since we just got over the pandemic. That fucking sucks. Today, while I was prepping, a guest walked into the dining room while I was listening to the Irish Mob episode, specifically during the Whipple ad, specifically the fuck you, fuck your family part. (laughs) The poor woman's eyes were as wide as saucers. I couldn't turn the pot off fast enough. It goes without saying I was a bit embarrassed. Why did the nice older woman stop by while we were closed? Well, she asked if I was Chef Sam. I said, sure am. What's your name? Tells me her name, gives me, uh, and then says, how how can I help you ask? And she replies, I just have to say you're a gift to this community. You run the best restaurant on this mountain and within a hundred mile radius. And I just wanted to thank you. Nobody can even remotely do what you do. And we are lucky to have you. Thank you again. And she, and she hands me 80 bucks. I'm a complete shock. Profusely thank her for her kind words, beg her to take back the money. She flat out refuses, begs me to never close our restaurant and then leaves. Since I'm a man, I shed no tears because I'm dead inside. No, I totally teared up and promptly put the money into our vacation fund. That is fucking awesome. Uh, thanks, Dan, for all uh, you and the rest of the bad, bad magic team do. My 69-year-old dad is a huge fan and loves that you were born in the same hospital he was. Small world. Sorry, not sorry about the length of this email. Hope to catch you live sometime. Do some goddamn SoCal dates on a Monday or Tuesday. Please, restaurant folk work every weekend. Well, thank you, Sam. I'm so glad that she uh, she gave you that tip. Uh, that is so cool. Good on her. And uh, I'm going to talk about how good your restaurant appears to be in a second. I love that your dad was also born in Grangeville, Idaho. Not many can say that. Little Syringa Hospital that has a general surgery now. I read on their website. They have one surgeon, <laughs> a dude named Barry Smith, Dr. Barry Smith, who lives in tiny ass Whitebird. Around 100 people live there. Uh, when I visit, uh, feels like most of them are drunk. I hope Barry's not one of the one of the drunk ones. Anyway. I hope your restaurant, Stone Creek Bistro in Lake Arrowhead, California, is fucking slammed all summer, and I bet it will be. Your Yelp reviews are off the charts fantastic. Four and a half stars out of 750 reviews. Blackened shrimp, po' boys, charred Thai, barbecue banh mi's, duck fat fries, cheeseburgers, braised short rib, free-range roast chicken, beet salads, and more. Man, good on you. It looks delicious. I'm glad your uh, your patrons love you. Uh, good on you, chef. Hail Nimrod. A uh, quick shout out and Cummins Law message now from an Italiano sacco, Razi Buongiorno. Uh, Razi writes, I prayed that this day would never come, but I suffered from Cummins Law the other day. For reference, I'm a plumber and HVAC technician from North Shore, Massachusetts. I was catching up on the second part of the Kirtland cult while working on an AC unit. I was not wearing headphones uh, while you detailed the horrors that poor, poor Skidmark endured. Apparently, ductwork conducts sound th- throughout the home very clearly. I went upstairs to check in with the customer. When they asked, what was I listening to? Tough one to explain. If you end up reading this, it would mean a lot if you could give a shout out to my manager, Gator. He got me into Time Suck and has helped me learn so much about our trade. Three out of five stars would not change a thing. Oh, Rossi. Well, Gator, uh, thanks for uh, taking Rossi under your dirty, demented wing and showing him the way that leads to Skidmark. (laughs) I bet that was a hard episode to explain. Uh, Thank you for sharing your pain, Rossi. And last one. Oh my gosh. Uh, This made me... uh, I laughed so hard I was fucking crying. Strange family moment. Fantastic father, uh, James McCrory writes, hello, almighty king of the suck. I'm writing this to tell you of a story of how you helped me piss my wife off. <laughs> As I was changing our 21-month-old diaper, she began to mess with her privates. My wife told her to stop messing with it. She asked me what she should call it, like her privates, you know, for the baby. I said, front butt. With a shocked look on her face, she told me not to say that. So like a grown man with a 15-year-old brain, I asked, oh, you mean front butt? She once again told me to stop saying that. At that moment, my daughter points at her privates and says, front butt. 
<laughs> I started laughing while my wife was horrified. My daughter then gets up, runs around naked, yelling front butt, front butt, front butt, front butt. I'm laughing harder. My wife doesn't know what to think at this point. When it was all over, she asked where I even came up with that. And I said, I learned it on Time Suck. And she said, of course you did. Thanks so much for the great laugh and the new inside joke in our house. Three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a damn thing. Hug those kids extra tight and give the queen's front butt some extra attention tonight. James McCrory. Well, thank you so much, James. I I was laughing. Yeah, so hard when I read that message that Lindsay asked me what the hell was going on. Such a funny scene to imagine. I hope you get laughs out of that story for years to come. And I did give <laughs> these front butts some attention. Uh, hello, Safina. Thanks, everyone, for the messages. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Scared to death. Time suck each week. Secret suck each week for you space lizards. Uh, please don't swipe right just so you and your fake kind of but not really suicidal sister can scam someone and maybe kill them this week. Instead, just keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. I can't stop thinking about those Russian marriage ads. God, they make me so happy. I am poor and ugly. I am looking for rich and hot. Tired of drink homemade vodka alone in winter hermit cabin. Sick of eat cold beet soup for dinner, sometimes snack on old shoelace. Tired of jerk into snow and stare dead eye, lonely into middle distance. Want vagina to help erase thought of death. Tired of live in existential crisis. If you not date, uh, please send cyanide.